Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Aaron Murphy. Aaron is a good friend of mine from jiu-jitsu. We actually started training around the same time and ended up testing for our purple belts together. We were test partners for that test. And so over the past seven plus years, Aaron has been really a, a pretty steady presence in my life great guy, really get to know a lot more about him in today's episode. I really didn't expect, (laughs) really did not expect a lot of the details we got in this episode. If you want to support The Kelly Patrick Show, even if this is the first time you have ever listened, please keep in mind my ideal referral for my health insurance business is someone who's turning 65 soon. They're going to go on to Medicare. I'm an independent broker. I can put them onto Anthem or Humana or United Healthcare or a lot of other companies also, but I can help people in that specific situation in 14 states across the country just as well as anyone else can. And that's what allows me to continue to record all these episodes of the Kelly Patrick Show and also lets me like train a lot of days of the week and live a, a good lifestyle, but I do appreciate everyone supporting and tuning into the episodes. If you want to support me, send me a referral. For the details for the Kelly Patrick Show sponsors, they are here. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. And and that's hard to do. Not many people that I record episodes with, I do a sound check (laughs) right before we start recording. And we establish that you are at least as loud as I am, so we don't have to adjust the levels. So congratulations, Aaron. I don't know if anyone's told you this before. Well, thank you. I've worked very hard on my um, 
my private but public podcast speaking ability, right? I love it. Um, for those of our, our listeners who, who are just tuning in, today's episode, I am joined by returning guest. We have Aaron Murphy. Aaron is a personal injury attorney in Louisville, Kentucky, licensed in two states, I believe. Uh, yeah, if you want to get technical, I'm uh, licensed in Kentucky, Alabama, and I've also passed the patent bar. Um, but most of that was superfluous. I just practice here in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm actually trying to practice as little as possible. So I've got a couple other projects I've been working on uh, a little more passionate about. So uh, you can still call me an attorney, though. I guess that's what my profession is. So. This is the second time you've come on the show. Aaron and I, of course, train jujitsu together, and we have done so for... Uh, over seven years now. I started in May of 2016 training myself at Gracie Jiu-Jitsu at Kentucky under Professor Scott Smith. When did you start? Started in January, January of 2016. And uh, it, yeah, it seemed like you were, you were there right when, when I, I started. Right, when I got in, I immediately was doing like five days a week. I went through a divorce recently and I just kind of threw myself into it. Yeah, no, you, you were training all the time. Nobody trained as much as you did. Your card was... You know, black and um, yellow. For a couple of years there, it yep. was it was about as as um, active of attendance as anyone in the academy. It was, and you had a sick guillotine game. I mean, your guillotines—you really put a lot into the guillotine. You've caught me in the guillotine multiple times, and actually caused me to have to go to some privates to learn how to defeat guillotines. You know what so. I appreciate about you, Aaron, is you. I don't want to sound, make it sound like you don't have an ego, because I'm sure you obviously, you, know, you, you do, right? I do. But, but I'll say this. When I've caught you in a guillotine, you at least your ego is not so much that you're like, oh, you know, you try to act like it was bullshit. You're like, you literally then put yourself right back into the exact situation, the next role, <laughs> and then maybe I get it again or maybe not. And I can see in your head where, despite having a healthy ego, I'm sure, you're at least like, okay, I'm not worried that he got me. I need to figure this shit out. So I appreciate that that's your kind of uh, approach to being caught. Yeah, because everybody's fooling themselves, right? Everybody is fooling themselves about our abilities, our background, our, um, you know, our capabilities. And when we're confronted with a reality check in anything at life, mm. we have a choice. And we can say, you know what? I'm not as good as I thought I was. And that's the first year of jujitsu for everybody, right? Sure. Um, I remember being manhandled by people who were significantly smaller than me and not that much better trained, okay? We're not talking about like a brown belt here. I'm talking about I was a one-stripe white belt. I was manhandled by a very small four-stripe white belt. Okay. And Jose Fernandez, there you go. No, he, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even talking about, he was. You mean people below, uh, yeah. uh, because he's somewhat, he, he tested with us for purple. Or no. not for purple. He tested with us for blue in, I think, March of 2017. He, he might have, but no, he was much better than the person I'm thinking of. Okay, okay. So, I only mentioned Jose. He's great, but he's only like 130 pounds, so I is. assumed that's who you're talking about. No, he's super skilled, but no, this was somebody who was like 120 pounds. It was wow. a four-stripe white belt. A man handled me, and we have a, a choice on how to respond to that, right? We can quit and say, oh, well, you know, I, I mean, if I could have used punches, I would have been better. There you go. That's a common one. Right. That wouldn't have worked in the street. Well, right. You could do that. And, you know, that's why Scott Smith implemented Glove Week. He's like, okay, try it. <laughs> um, and so we all have that opportunity to just walk away and not put ourselves in those situations, not compete again. Um, but that doesn't do us any good. So, no, and I've made a decision to 
win with jujitsu or lose with jujitsu. Okay. And so, and I try to tell the students that in my classes, which is don't resort to just flailing around. Don't resort to doing, you know, something spazzy or using strength just because your jujitsu isn't working. Work on your jujitsu. If your jujitsu loses the match for you, that's fine. You lost with jujitsu because we believe that jujitsu is a transferable skill, mm, right? Okay. And that if we work on it and have that tested, we get better. So Gary Tone is a great example of that, right? I mean, John Danaher said there's white belts all across America who have visited the gym and are going home and telling that. stories about how they tapped Gary Tone it, right? And they're like, yeah, I tapped. So if I'm rolling with somebody and maybe, quote unquote, I should win, right? But they catch me, all mm-hmm. right? And it's a, you know, it's a, a younger person, a lighter person, a less experienced person. I don't say to them, oh, well, you know, I could have I done this or that. I said, great job. Because they won with jujitsu, you know, and I'm not trying to go hard with them and smash them. I want them to build those skills, but I also want to learn how I can escape those things with less energy, you know. And so I never take away what another person does because it's legit. If I tap, it's legit. There's no, there's no, oh, well, yeah, but. No, it's legit. You did that. I want to support you in your jujitsu journey, and it doesn't take away anything for me to tap. It really doesn't. No. Uh, as long as you've got a, a, a healthy ego that's in check. Well, right. And <laughs> there's stories about so many people who I think uh, Sean Strickland was telling a story recently about Chris Curtis had a guy come to the gym and he was, you know, he's like, man, I did, I did pretty good. I did pretty good. You know, I, I could really be something. And Chris was like, I was being nice to you. He was like, and I, I'm not sure if the story went that he really messed them up after that or... But I had a, uh, you know, I was a blue belt, I had a white belt um, I was rolling with, and I would get him in a, you know, get him an arm bar, but I'd release it, you know, I'd, I wouldn't wait for him to tap, and after the match, he said, man, you, you, if you just did a little better, <laughs> you, you, you could have really had me there. He said he this to you. Me. Yes, he did. And I could have said, what are you talking about? I was being nice to you. I could have said that to him, but I didn't, because I knew. And so it didn't matter that he knew. Sure. You know, I didn't need to, you know, try to keep his ego down. I mean, that life's going to do that. Life's going to, you know, give him whatever feedback he's getting in life. It, it doesn't need to be me. And he quit training after that. Um, not too long after that. And that's fine. You know, that's his journey's going in a different direction. So I wonder if you can read much into someone who does so much little analysis like that, like coaching up after a role with an upper rank and then they quit. Is there a connection? <laughs> they don't make it. You know, I don't know. It, I don't want to say it's a predictable, it's a predictable um, pattern, but yeah, everybody's got a different view of themselves, a different view of what they're going for in life. And, you know, like there was this guy who started training with me um, named Ryan Dugan, and he doesn't train so much anymore um, <laughs> because he said, hey, I've got, I'm, I'm pretty good grappler. I want to go work on striking. Now, that is me, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Ryan <laughs> Kelly. Patrick Dugan. Um, sorry, I added. I, I that's okay. I, 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 I in all seriousness, I, I try from an attorney for that's. I, I I do try to at least not. I'm not like hiding <laughs> who I am. Does that make sense? Uh, sure. Now people know my actual full name, Ryan Kelly Dugan. I've so. doxed you. Um, yes. So, you know, you you made the decision to take a little different turn with your training, but it was because you had another purpose, right? Okay. A lot of people quit because they're like, ah, well. Um, you know, it doesn't fit my life anymore, my schedules, my kids' schedules, you know. And I've said many times, how do you make a white belt quit jujitsu? And it's you give them a blue belt. 
everybody quits when they get the blue belt, right? We talked about that last time. And how do you make a blue belt quit jujitsu? Well, you know, you give them a new girlfriend, right? Mm. How do you make a purple belt quit jujitsu? Well, you give them a new job, you know, guy gets a new job, he leaves. And so what is, what is your hobby, right? Jiu-jitsu is my hobby, okay? So is your hobby something that you do? It's just part of your life. You do it, you know, whether you have a good day or bad day. Are you building model airplanes and if they fall apart, you build another one or you just quit, you know? Is it contingent on you excelling in that hobby or is it a hobby regardless of the outcome? Right. And I'll tell you, you know, jiu-jitsu is a really good touchstone for that because there's levels. And when people say there's levels, it's kind of like, oh yeah, well, there's levels, but... It's There's really real really when you levels. experience it. You roll with one guy who kicks your ass, absolutely fucks you up. And then you're like, okay, that guy's way better than me. I don't know how much better. But then you watch him get his ass kicked by someone else, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? Sure. I was just training down in Sarasota a couple weeks ago and went to the small place. I've been there before. So, you know, try to get some training while I'm on vacation. And there's a young guy in there. He's Brazilian, 30 years old. So, yeah, I've only had my black belt for about three years. And we rolled together, and this guy was good. This guy was real good. And usually I can tell the, le- you know, the level. I mean, you can be better than me, but you can be real better than me. Sure. And this guy was real better. Okay. So it was unusual. And I was like, hey, you compete? He's like, I came to America to become an athlete. He's like, I didn't come here to teach jujitsu. He looked me in the eye and said, I teach kids classes just to fun my life. I would like if he said, I teach kids classes and I hate kids. Well, I mean, he didn't say, <laughs> he didn't words, say that, but, but he said he didn't like teach. I mean, okay. And I said, okay, you didn't, he's like, yeah, I compete all the time. He's like, IBJJF competition is where you prove yourself. And I was like, okay, well, good. And he started naming names. He was like, yeah, you know, Herbert Burns, Gilbert Burns, they're my best friends. My main training partners down in Miami or whatever. I was like, well, I mean, there's levels. And if you're on that level, then uh, I feel good. You only tap me. <laughs> five times, three times, whatever he tapped. But he was good. You know, he was really good. Everything was beautiful, technical. He put pressure in sport. It was a very good melding of pressure and sport jiu-jitsu. Hmm. He was always getting to the top, but he was very flexible. He was very quick. He had a lot of really neat moves. And it was a great It was a great match. He was a good guy, a really great guy. But, you know, you never know when you're going to find somebody who just trained all their life, got their black belt at 27, and, you know, trains with the biggest names in the world. And then you realize, well, I mean, I'm good. Compared to some. But I'm not going to be great. Yeah. You know, I mean, I can be good. You know, I can be a guy who can, you know, handle himself, have a great day at jiu-jitsu, hopefully not get hurt, not hurt anybody else. And people are like, oh, well, Aaron, Aaron's pretty good, right? But I know. You know, you go up to Marcelo Garcia's. I mean, he's got guys, every guy in that room has been training for 14 years. Have you been there? I've been there multiple times. I love going to Marcelo Garcia's in New York. Um, class, open mat. Was that the most extreme collection of talent in one room you have seen well i got my picture with mateus denise so probably okay <laughs> um yeah mateus denise I, I guess is a you know multiple champion and pretty much i mean i think he's on the level but basically he's second only to gordon ryan right i mean every he's on that level of guys and there's a few guys who are on the top level that only gordon ryan be, can be counted on to beat them routinely right so yeah the guys that were able to beat me he's able to beat them and then you know, Gordon's able to beat them all. So, and, and that might even be giving myself, there's probably a level or two in between there. Sure. Um, so yeah. I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm, I'm not saying I'm great. I'm not saying I'm elite at all. I mean, I'm good, but that's all it's ever going to be. And I, I understand that. 
And it is fulfilling despite that. There's a ceiling. And that, that actually actually adds to the legitimacy of it. At what age did you start training jujitsu? 35. I started at 32. Yeah. So if someone starts at 32 or 35, and no offense to you or I, but we're not like the most blessed athletically gifted humans in the history of the world. If we can start at 32 or 35 and then somehow just become super elite, that would be a little... According to the, the uh, way other sports are evaluated, that would be very bizarre. Someone could just pick it up that late and then just go to the top. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. Um, Jiu-Jitsu is a little weird, though, because it's not who's good, it's who's left, so sure. to speak. And there are guys who started at an early age, but most of them quit, right? Sure. And um, everybody knows stories about guys who were real good. But then they quit, and then, you know. How much is Kenny most. Stewart training these days? Um, I've heard none. That's a good example. Because when I started, <laughs> he was a 14 or 15-year-old kid, and he would just be just rolling with me. There's videos of him snapping me down. He weighed like 30 pounds less than me probably. Snapping me down, and then just like doing a very easy flying triangle on me. And there's multiple videos of him doing that to me. Sure, he was a unique talent. In fact, um, I believe he went to New York and visited, I guess it was Henzo's at the time, and they brought out Nicky Ryan to roll with him. And it's supposed to be non-videoed. I think his dad did video it. I think there's a video out there some, somewhere of Kenny rolling with Nicky Ryan. Mm. And they said it was a good match. They said that uh, they were like, wow, uh, Nicky, Nicky needs to see you know your style and how you roll. And he was very flexible, had a very relaxed style, but he would always be getting you in a triangle, right? He could triangle you from anywhere, from yeah. the top, bottom, from the back, from the front. And uh, really good guy, though. I mean, really laid back. I like back, Kenny. Really he's got sweet. a good sense. He's one of those guys who has a real good sense of humor. He's just kind of reserved about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Um, he went off to college, right? Got married. Um, and I, I don't know. I, mean, I hope he is training. But I, yeah, I heard he you know, wasn't training. But at some point, why do you push yourself? Why do you keep going? And when you're good and great like he was, He's got to have a motivation sure. and motivation is a life change. So that's why, is it, is it your hobby? Is it just something you do as part of your life? And so that's kind of how I've tried to look at it is, well, if I'm good, if I'm bad, if I'm successful today, if I'm not, I mean, jujitsu is just something I do. It keeps me healthy, keeps me um, motivated and I'm learning things. And you can look at learning any skill, any, any type endeavor. And there are a lot of things that are very similar. So, I think, you know, I started flying. Yeah. And, um, how long ago did you start flying? Started last June, June of 22. First time you ever flew a plane was last June. Um, yeah. I mean, I had been in a little plane like once or twice, three times before, but not, you know, learning. And so I started in June, took July off to go on vacation, and then started back in August. Um, took me a little longer than I thought it would, but I got my private pilot's license May 31st of this year. And so now I'm continuing to get my endorsements, high performance complex, and going to go into um, doing some instrument training and keep going from there. So one thing I, I didn't tell you is I am exhausted right now. I am just beat. I mean, I've got a headache because I'm so tired when I was tired because I landed at Bowman Field at 2 a.m. this morning. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I went down to Naples, Florida to get my first plane. And that was an adventure. Do you get it? Yeah. That's how you got back here. Landed at Bowen Field at 2 a.m. this morning, bro. Wow. How so, many people flew on that plane back with you from uh, Naples? Me and Cody, one of my instructors. And so we were going to go down Sunday night and fly into Fort Myers, American Airlines, right? Well, we got to um, SDF, Louisville, um, 
Louisville's airport, and America was like, yeah, we're not going to be able to get you there. We've got to cancel all these flights, blah, blah, blah. So we went over to Southwest Counter, and I said, hey, can you get us to, you know, West Florida? They said, we got a flight to Tampa leaving in 45 minutes. We were on the flight. And we got to Tampa, and we got a lift to take us down to Bonita Springs, which is just north of Naples. It was over two hours this guy drove us down there. I was really grateful. And so we spent the night in Bonita Springs, and we're out on the airfield at Naples at 9 a.m. We're picking up a Cessna 172. Little, you know, it's got four seatbelts, but really, two, three people max is all you can put in these things. So we get out there on the field, look at the plane. They're like, yeah, we're just fixing a few things on it, putting another flap hinge on there. You know, we'll be good to go in a second. So we're going to test fly the plane, and the oil pressure gauge doesn't work. Now, oil pressure gauge is probably, arguably, the most important instrument. Okay. Because the thing is, if your oil starts leaking, if you blow a seal or there's a leak, then what's going to happen is that engine's going to overheat quickly and explode. And you're going to have no engine. You're going to be in the air. Maybe engine fire, but you're going to be coming down. So if your oil temperature gauge drops to zero and your temperature starts rising, you have to get that plane on the ground ASAP. You don't have an oil temperature gauge. You don't know if your mm, oil is still in the engine, okay, okay. if it's overheating or not. What time did you check that yesterday? So the 2 a.m., this is the story of yesterday, right? What time did you establish, hmm, a little bit of an issue with the oil pressure gauge? That's probably 10 a.m. 10 a.m. yesterday? Yeah, 10 a.m. Oh, okay. Yesterday. You were expecting to be home in Louisville by? By 8, 8 p.m. Oh, okay. Max, okay. 7, 7 p.m., 8 p.m. And so they was at a repair shop, and so they're like, hey, we'll fix it. took them three tries to fix this thing. Well, then we had to, you know, wait for some paperwork to go through, and we didn't get off the ground until probably 12.30. And we flew out of Naples, elevation 8 feet, and got up in the air. It was, I think it felt like it was 113 that day. And so you get low performance in the planes when it's really, really hot. But plane did fine. Flew up the Florida coast, gorgeous. We flew right over Sanibel Island, Captiva Island, um, just made our way up and stopped for fuel in Valdosta, Georgia. Everything was fine, but there was a line of storms coming through. Massive line of storms coming through yesterday. I don't know if you remember, it rained a couple times yesterday here. Yeah, certainly here. There was some significant raining. Yeah, that went all the way through Atlanta, all the way across the East Coast. And so we're watching it. We're watching it on our, um, you know, four-flight systems, and it's not looking good. So we're like, well, instead of going up to Knoxville, we need to vector to the west and go to Huntsville. So we're up there, flying over South Georgia. Okay, um... You and the guy who, Cody. Cody is a, 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 a more of a licensed pilot than you. Yeah, he's a flight instructor. So. Okay, so, so he, he, at that time, mid-air, you guys noticed the weather. Well, we're watching this on the ground, right? Okay, on the ground. So, so okay, so you're deciding maybe we'll change routes, we'll go west to avoid the weather. Uh, I guess what I'm asking, and sorry to interrupt, is, is like, how does that coordinate with, like, you want to try to avoid an uh, in-air collision with another plane, like, how do you just switch last minute? How does that work? So if you're flying VFR, visual flight rules, right, you can go pretty much anywhere you want in the air. Now, we're talking air traffic control the whole time, but you do have wide latitude on okay. where you go. And if you change altitudes, change directions, you can just tell them, hey, I'm changing, especially on a day like yesterday where there's clouds popping up everywhere. There's thunderstorms popping up everywhere. There's 60,000-foot cumulus formations forming. Okay, these things are monsters. Now, we see them in the distance, so we've got a vector around them. Right? So we're flying around these things through sort of little ones, cloud surfing on you know a little bit of popcorn. But if they're getting too big, you're going around them. So we kept 
pushing west, pushing west. At one point over Auburn, we were in a basically a cloud channel between two formations, and ATC says, hey, we need to give you vectors because there's a Learjet taking off underneath you. What's a vector? That means a direction. So okay. change directions. And I have to say, unable. I can't. I'm in this cloud channel, and to maintain VFR, I've got to stay exactly where I am. So they vectored the Lear around us. Interesting. Well, I mean... Just because it was necessary. Either that or they were going to wait to take off. Well, they were they were already taking off, and they were... So anyway, it it's not really that big a deal, but it's, you know, it's a complicated procedure. Sure, sounds complicated. Moving through thunderstorms. And so we made it to Huntsville as the sun was setting. I think Huntsville, sorry, Kenny Stewart made be in Huntsville. Sorry yeah, to interrupt. Yeah, you went to school there. Um, and so we, we got the crew car, went out to eat at a J. Alexander's, got a steak, and it was pitch black. So what do we do? Do we stay in Huntsville or do we come back to Lowell? Came back. Well, yeah. So well, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> so, so we get in the air. The thunderstorm activities died down, okay? But there's still a lot of clouds. And so we got to surf around these clouds. It's pitch black. So the way you do that is you look at the lights on the ground, you look at the lights in the sky. If you can't see any lights on the ground and you can't see any lights on the sky, there's probably a cloud in front of you. So you Hopefully just a cloud. <laughs> so you move to the left. Well, I mean, right? And if you There could be something hidden back there. A plane could be back there. There could be. Now we're on with it. Am I paranoid about mid-air collisions are not common? They're not common, but they're not unheard of. Um, you know, my instructor said, you know, two people have survived mid-air collisions. Really? What? And Sorry to keep interrupting. No, you could. If you ever see the damage that a bird will do to a plane wing, which it's uncanny. Because you hit a bird with your car, it, you know, you don't have to. Birds will destroy a plane wing. And they have to be completely rebuilt. All right? So that's a bird. Well, if you touch another aircraft in the air... You'll be lucky to survive that. Because I assume. It will separate the control surfaces from the body of the plane and just destroy the whole thing. So he knows two people who have survived, survived mid-air collisions. That's what he says. Um, so, yeah, it's a thing, but you're on with air traffic control, and they're monitoring where you're at. They're monitoring where the That's other... kind of their ass if something happened. All right, I mean, it's your ass, too. You're up there to die. <laughs> I mean, obviously, but... They're it, the federal government, so, I mean, you're not, you're not going to sue them, probably, but... Uh, your family might. But anyway, so you're up there. They're, they're monitoring. And they say, hey, you know, you got traffic at, uh, you know, 11 o'clock, you know, four miles, type type unknown. You know, keep a lookout. But on a cloudy night, well, fortunately, there's less aviation on a cloudy night. There was uh, the last Southwest flights of the evening and maybe a couple UPS guys. So they're vectoring you around. And sometimes you got to tell them, hey, I can't do that. You know, I can't go that direction because I'll be in a cloud. So we're going around, weaving our ways around clouds up through Tennessee, up through Kentucky. And they gave, you know, they held us out there for a little while over Bardstown while, while a couple UPS planes came in. And then they said, okay, go to Bowman. So we got on the ground about 2 a.m. this morning and tied the plane down. Um, it, was, it was a great adventure. I mean, obviously ended well. And so my wife sends me stories about every plane that crashes. Every, <laughs> I was, I've got a lot going through my head right now. Every plane that crashes, she sees it. Um, it's odd what Google pushes to her phone, you know, because of searches she's probably done. Right. I mean, I never get a plane crash story. You didn't know that midair because you don't care about that. Right, no, I don't read them. I don't click on them. <laughs> would you be the type guy who would have done the Titanic thing? No. Are you sure you sound like you would? I don't. Well, so I don't think that's an acceptable risk. Okay. Um, and everybody's got in their mind what is an acceptable risk. And when you hear about what they were doing in that submersible, they went down there to watch the Titanic on a TV 
green. I mean, they weren't looking outside a window at anything. There was no benefit to actually being on the bottom of the ocean. You could have stayed on top. You could have put me in a little, you know, cylinder on the, you know, on the beach. Show me a TV inside of what your, you know, your little submersible robot was doing, and I would have seen the same thing. Hmm. So there was no benefit to the risk. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, my wife sends me all these stories about planes that crash and. I mean, she was always telling me JFK Jr. crashed. I was getting ready to say. So, and that's a good, cra- and that's a good crash to actually analyze. Um, I watched a, uh, something about him recently. Oh, good, good. Um, when you look at these crashes, they say 85% of crashes are pilot error. 80, okay. Yeah, and if you look at it, there is usually a predictable pattern of events, and usually the pilot ignores things they shouldn't have ignored. Now, that's not to say that I'm not susceptible to the exact same thing, and I have to realize... I am susceptible to the exact same thing. I could exactly do what JFK Jr. did. Now, I will tell you a couple things in his case that are unique is one, he had his wife with him. And his wife's sister. Yes. And the interesting thing, my wife says she'll never fly with me because she thinks I'll be safe if I'm by myself, but if we're both together, it tempts fate and our children will be orphans, right? She's maybe wrong in how simplistic that conclusion is, but there's actually a lot to that, okay? Because flight planning is just as important as the flight. And so JFK Jr. was going to go up to New York. He was gonna, his wife was going to go shopping with her sister. Everything was going to be fine. They were going to fly back in the daylight. But things got late. They got fighting, okay? Probably fighting about how late she stayed out shopping, right? How much money she spent. Maybe, maybe. But now we have a change in the plan. He's not flying back in the day anymore. He's flying back at night. And we've got an emotional stress, Okay. His instructor, I believe, talked to him on the phone and said, hey, don't make the flight. I'll come up there and make the flight with you, et cetera, et cetera. He was definitively dev- advised against it. He was. Okay. Because now he's in a, a more stressful situation, a more difficult situation, and if he's a licensed pilot, he could fly at night, okay? There's nothing to say that as a licensed pilot, you can't fly at it night. It wasn't illegal for him to do that. Not as long as he could see the horizon, see okay. the stars, see the water, but it's very dangerous when you're flying over the water and... You might lose the horizon, okay? But as long as he's not in instrument conditions, he can still fly at night. But now we've had a change. We've had an emotional st- stress. And flying at night is a more dangerous because in the daytime, your engine quits. You can see a field, set it down on a field, right? There was a case three weeks ago, okay, where a little training plane out of Bowman <laughs> crash-landed in a field in Indiana, okay? It was a training flight. The instructor made an error. He thought the plane had more gas in it than it did. And on the way back to Bowman Field, it ran out of gas. It was just that simple. Human error. But it was a beautiful day. He saw a field down there. It was a great airplane, great platform. It was a Diamond DA-20. Would, would that instructor be in trouble? <laughs> so he did not get it as badly in trouble as some people think he should. He got a slap on the wrist. He's still instructing. He's out there again. Um, if he had crashed in Louisville in a populated area, he probably would have gotten a much bigger... Um, <laughs> a bigger, I guess, sanction from the FAA. You think he gets like Google reviews and stuff? I don't know. I don't even know his name. So I was, um, that was going to be my next question. What's I his don't name? know his name. Okay. <laughs> I don't know his name. I know some of the other guys in the field who know him and know of him, but yeah, it was a, it was an honest mistake, but it's a big mistake, right? Because in aviation, a little mistake can absolutely have dire consequences, which is why they're pretty strict with the licensure requirements. And, um, you know, you can solo an airplane after very little training, but it is really about a quarter way through your training they let you solo. 
you're doing a lot of training after that. And the difference is when you're soloing an airplane, your life is probably the only one at risk. When they give you a license, you can carry other people. You can carry four people, five people, six people in some of these planes, and their lives are at risk now. So is it common for the, the solo portion of a new pilot's training? He's not completed yet, but he's, he is going solo. You said he's only at risk. Is it common for them to die in that instance? You know, I don't know the statistics on that. I have not heard about a lot of solo pilots dying. Okay. And, you know, one of the reasons is you're going through training. Your instructor helps plan that uh, that route with you. They've probably flown that route with you. There's actually an instructor at Bowman Field right now who, on a cross-country solo, okay, I believe she blew a cylinder in the plane and her radios failed at the same time. And so, wait, wait, wait. <clears throat> blew a cylinder, and her radios failed at the same time. Related? Well, I don't know if it's related or Regardless, not. Regardless, I guess, but she was in trouble. She was able to land in Evansville with no engine, no radios wow. on this cross-country solo, and lived to tell about it. So no, that, no injury to her. That was maybe not her fault? No, not at all. That was not at all her fault. She's kind of hero. Uh, now... Yeah, I she mean, only saved herself, so <laughs> heroic for her. Right, but you know, to your question, you do train for unexpected things to happen. You do train for emergencies, and you want to minimize those risks, right? You want to minimize the risk of something bad happening through training on how to deal with it. But in JFK Jr.'s case, he allowed the risk to get ahead of him. Now, for example, I was flying cross-country last night in the dark. Is that like JFK flying? Well, I didn't have my wife with me. We weren't arguing. I had my instructor with me. Okay? Now, it's not to say that nothing could have happened to us, but when you have two pilots, there's a reason they have two pilots in front of every commercial airliner. There's a lot going on. It's good to have somebody to share the load with so your attention doesn't get divided. So he can work the radios, I can fly the plane. You know, and It's a job that could be easily done by one person, but... It's entirely necessary for the sake of any type of standard of safety to have two. You'd be surprised at how small the jets are that require two pilots. I mean... How small the jet... Oh, okay. So if you had a six-seater jet, a Citation Mustang, I believe that's the biggest jet that can be flown with one pilot. Oh, that's very small. Yeah, very small. Six-seater. Wow. Six-seater. So you talk to Mac, um, you know, at Jiu-Jitsu. He's a, a great pilot, typed on like five different jets at least, um, I'm sorry, he what? He's, he's type rated, which type means rated. when you get to jet aircraft, you have to be specifically authorized for that plane. Okay. Okay. And so they call that a type rating. You're rated for that type of aircraft. Okay. And so, you know, a lot of pilots get one, two jet. I mean, so I was just saying he's typed on five different jets. He's an ATP pilot, airline transport pilot rated. He, that's the highest rating any pilot can get. Right. So he's a very qualified pilot. He is at the highest level like the highest level of pilot qualification. And there's a lot of guys that jiu-jitsu are like that. Um, uh, Jacob's, you know, Jacob's like that. Okay, D I know Jacob. Dean. Um, Dean, yep, uh, yep. Th these guys are at the top of the game. I mean, been flying their whole lives. Right? Those those three, kind of. Jacob, Dean, well, Dean's grandson trains, I teach him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, great people, love it. So those are probably the three that you can think of at the academy? No, I mean, Cody, Cody Barnes. Oh, I mean, that dude. God, yeah, I forgot. Yeah, he's, uh, I mean. I like him. Oh, he's great. I was. He um, took a little hiatus and just came back, I think. It was because he was doing his um, first year with UPS, and they base you somewhere else. So oh. that was why he was based gotcha. at another. So anyway, these guys are at the top of the game. Both, there's two pilots in the front of the cockpit. So what I'm saying is, 
when you say this could easily be done, well, in daytime flying in a small plane, it is enough for one pilot to manage. Okay. But the thing you should never forget as a pilot is it doesn't matter how good you are and how much you've trained, things can still get out of hand and two are better than one. Makes sense. So I think a more experienced pilot would say, well, yeah, we should have another pilot with us. Instead of saying, no, I got this, you know, I'm good. That, that bravado, that ego will kill you. And so you have to be flexible and pilots are not flexible. That's one of the things they tell you in pilot training is pilots have the characteristic to whether they're going to get it done. Oh, so when, when someone a, maybe kind of like you. When American tells you they can't get you to West Florida, you go to the Southwest. You do not that, deviate. You're going to get there at all costs. Right? That's you. That's me. Okay. That's me. I have to know that about myself. I have to know. Like, Somewhat similar to the, 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 the concept of um, what we talked about earlier with getting submitted, not shying away from it, no, recognizing it. That's who I am. I got caught. I'm prone to this. Right. <laughs> I better fucking acknowledge it and address it. Right. Because I'm, yeah, I'm prone to being like, no, I don't want to ever get submitted. But that's where growth happens, right? Mm. I mean, me recognizing this is a dangerous situation, having Cody with me doesn't make me twice as safe. It makes me five times as safe, right? I mean, exponential levels of safety can be had with preventative measures. With Interesting. Saying so, yeah, um, flying's been fun. I've been training on new new craft. Just got my first airplane. Um, about to get it upgraded to avionics. We was just talking to the guy this morning about you, do you, avionics do you upgrades. And, correct, or... Feel free to say, I'd prefer not to discuss. Do you mind saying it ballpark of how much does it cost to buy a plane? Well, it depends on what plane you're buying, okay? And I will tell you, you can spend whatever you want on a plane. If you want to spend $10,000 on a plane, you can spend $10,000 okay. on a plane. I just bought a car the other day for 13000 I could have bought a plane instead. Yes, you could have. You could have gotten a plane cheaper than a car. And if you get on trade a plane or controller.com, you can search planes to your heart's content. You will see things you never even knew were out there. And there are planes that were built in the 1930s for sale. There are planes that were built in the 1940s for sale and right on down. Okay, so it really depends. There's so many different types of planes. And one thing that planes are designed for is a certain mission. So it's really hard to get a plane that will do everything. So you really define what mission you want. Makes sense. All right. So the plane I bought is a 2004 172S model, okay, which is a pretty recent model of uh, 172. And it's uh, the most common plane in the world. More Cessna 172s have been built than pretty much any other plane. How many seats? There's four seat belts. Kind of like what you said earlier, four seatbelts, really three people max. You cannot put four adults in that plane. There are certain versions of that plane, and it depends on how much stuff it has in it. And there is a plane over at uh, Bowman Field that's a a 172. It's not an S model. It's an older one, but it has a lot of stuff stripped out of it. And you can put four adults in it, but not full fuel. What type did JFK Jr. wreck? That was a Piper Saratoga II, which is um, an airplane with six places. It is... Six seats. Six seats, yep. It is what's called a high-performance and complex airplane, which really doesn't mean too much. Um, it means a little, okay? It is a little more uh, horsepower than the planes you're going to train on. So a high-performance aircraft is any aircraft that has an engine of more than 200 horsepower, okay? So if you have a twin, a, you know, a, a twin-engine airplane with two engines, but they're both 200 or less horsepower, that's not a high-performance, okay? It could be a complex, which means... Basically, complex means it has to have a, ver- a variable pitch propeller, flaps, and retractable landing gear. Okay, mm-hmm. most most of the time you just think retractable landing gear. Okay, retractable landing gear 
equals complex. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you there. No worries. So the Saratoga is a high performance because its engine is more than 200 horsepower. Okay. It's complex because it's got the landing gear. And that's the RFK Junior one. Yeah. Um, they're a little, they're a little quicker. A little quicker than yours. Uh, yeah, a little quicker than you. So I've been training on a Beach Bonanza, okay, which is a high-performance complex airplane. All right, I started, started uh, training on that, and it's a very beautiful airplane because it goes a little faster, and so you're going to get places faster. It is a little bigger inside, a little nicer, and it has all the bells and whistles. The problem is these airplanes go a little faster, so things creep up on you quicker, and there's more stuff to do. So you get a little more overwhelmed. Well, if you're more overwhelmed and things are coming at you faster, you have have to have less time to react. You have to have more training, okay? I don't think that's necessarily what killed JFK Jr., though. A lot of people say, oh, well, there's this high-performance complex airplane, and, you know, that's why it was. You know, he got confused because the horizon line disappeared, and a lot of times in the black of night over water is a very confusing place for a pilot to you know, fly, and they believe he got upside down because if you're not properly focused on your instruments, at night, you get confused really easily. You think, oh, well, this should be over there or that should be over there. And you start to rely too much on your visual sense instead of relying on your instruments. And so that's why pilots go ahead and get instrument training and instrument So reading. he got confused. I thought we, we had kind of established it was due to the nagging wife. You know, emotional stress is a huge factor in taking up pilots bandwidth um what they teach you in flight training though is it is your responsibility as a pilot and so as a pilot you have you have the ability to tell air traffic control i am unable to do that i cannot comply with your instructions so as a pilot you have the sole responsibility you you really got (laughs) you're kind of losing it you and your wife are having an argument up there you're like hey sorry that i can't do that right now is that what you mean any any emotional distress. If for some reason you're going to say, I know myself, my my uh, heart's racing, I need to chill out for a minute. Sorry, air traffic control, I can't do that. If it puts your life in jeopardy or in the life of another person, you absolutely have the, I mean, not only the ability, you have the duty to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to preserve life. And so there's lots of situations where maybe a pilot would be in an emergency situation. And they would say mayday. If a pilot says mayday over the radio, it commands radio silence on the frequency. And air traffic control gives that pilot whatever assistance, whatever aid possible. So if you were in a two-seater plane and you're coming in, you have an engine failure, okay? And you can't make it to Bowman, you're over Stanford Field. There is UPS traffic, Southwest traffic coming in. If you say mayday, 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 I need runway 35 left. All right, and they say, "Oh, you know what? This is annoying. This guy's in a little plane. We got all this traffic coming in. They can't tell you no. If you say this is, I'm declaring an emergency. I need runway three five left or three five right, the really long one. They have to say, you know what? You've declared an emergency. The field is yours. Obviously, if you start abusing that, well." Now, I say, you're going to get an FAA investigation. Okay. Out, okay? I see, I you see. are going to have to report. I see. And they, and they say, say type of emergency. Say souls on board. Um, you know, you have to tell them, if you can, what type of emergency, right, is this? And you say, I lost my engine. I need that, I need that runway. They're going to divert that other traffic. Now, they're going to do an NTSB investigation. They're going to find out why you lost your engine, okay? What's NTSB? National Transportation Safety Board, Okay. 
This is your this is your your new hobby. All of this. Right? <laughs> you you know all of this. And geeking out about aviation. For you know, a couple it, years you've been It's a lot of fun. Deep it's dive. A lot of fun. Okay. So, so the investigation. Yeah, they'll do an investigation. So for example, um, you know, one of the guys we mentioned before was on a training flight and he had a, a problem. He had a retractable gear airplane. Two of the wheels came down. One of them didn't. Okay. So he had a he had a basically crash land this plane. Now fortunately he had his engine. So he crash landed it on the runway at Lexington. Okay. And plane was obviously messed up, but him and his student were fine. Okay. Walked away from that. He got an NTSB investigation from the FAA. They investigated his case. I know him. I know the guy who investigated his case. And they looked at it. They cleared him. He was not at fault one bit for that. What they found had happened was the the aircraft aviation mechanic who was working on the plane had used the wrong parts in the hydraulic line of the gear as they came up and down, and one had failed. When this hose fails, all the hydraulic fluid basically left the plane, and so... He was left with two gears down and one gear up. That mechanic get in trouble? <laughs> Pretty sure he did. I mean, I've think. heard, and I don't know, I don't know this, okay, but I've heard that if a mechanic deviates um, carelessly from the regulations, they can go to jail if somebody loses. Makes the sense. Yeah, I mean, that level of negligence would be. I mean, it, it sounds like it would be criminal because in aviation you have to know everything could kill. Like there is, and there have been a lot of people who've been shredded by propellers just on the. <laughs> On the ramp. So I took my son flying for the first time last week. <laughs> They're standing too close to the propeller and they just get shredded? Yes. <laughs> yes, that propeller is spinning about, I mean, up to 2,700 revolutions per minute. It never looked like it would be a good idea for me to walk toward them. Well, the problem is you can't see them when they're spinning, right? If this busy airfield, a couple of airplanes running, you're not looking, you're not seeing the propeller. If you don't know, that is the most dangerous part of the airplane. The other thing that happens is people hot prop it, which is if you spin a propeller and if you're dumb and in front of a plane and you're just like pulling on the propeller it is possible for that plane to start itself there is a very special technique because in the old days in the 1920s they that's what they did they would spin the propeller of the airplane and it would start there is a special technique you have to be trained on how to do that because that propeller will get back around and chop off your hand quicker than your hand can get out of the way <laughs> if that happens right um, it is very rare for a person to live through a propeller strike, although I did hear about somebody who did it, but they were horribly disfigured. And so I took my son flying last week for the first time, right? I mean, that's the first thing I told him is everything on this, everything on this field can kill you. you. Stay right next to me and do not get in the front of a plane. Do not get in front of a plane um, unless you are trained to inspect the plane. And if that propeller's running, I don't want to be outside that plane. I want to be in on the inside of that plane. If we have to get outside the plane, you're turning that plane off. Wow. It's not worth the risk. Uh, to be close to a, a moving propeller. So, yeah, I took him on a little flight. We flew up to um, Indiana. There's a little airfield up there that has a a sweet shop on the field. It's like a dairy castle. You know, they get soft-serve ice cream, milkshakes, things like that. Flew him up there. It was a great flight. He loved it. It was the smallest runway I've ever landed on. This thing was like 30 feet wide. But fortunately, it was a calm day. We landed, got some ice cream, came back. He loved it. He was like, Dad, can I fly the plane? So I was like, yeah, sure. Go very, ahead. very fulfilling. What what are your plans with your plane? You, so, you you said earlier, you specified, you said every plane has a specific mission. What are you buying this mission for? You know, what are you buying this plane for? What's the mission? What's the mission for your plane? If you don't mind sharing. I don't mind sharing. It's a training airplane, okay? And so I'm leasing it back to the flight school mm. for people to train with. And so it's also available for me to train in, all right? And so like I said, I'm doing more training. I'm doing instrument training. 
Now, I'm also training on bigger airplanes. The problem with bigger airplanes is they cost more. So you want to do your training in the littlest airplane and then go only do the training you need for the bigger airplane. So it wouldn't make sense for me to rent a Beach Bonanza to do instrument training in. So it makes sense for me to rent a Beach Bonanza to learn how to fly a Beach Bonanza, but not learn how to shoot approaches and work avionics equipment. So um, getting the avionics upgraded, doing a $50,000 avionics upgrade to this airplane and getting it decked out with state-of-the-art stuff so I can fly in this airplane, but also rent it out to other students. Um, so it kind of starts to pay for itself a little bit. That's the idea. You know, airplanes and boats, they are great while you're using them, but if they're sitting in the shed, mm. they're just breaking down and not making any money. Depreciating. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of depreciation, another thing about buying airplanes is they're on an 80% depreciation schedule this year. Last year was 100%. So you can write off the entire amount of a plane purchase last year, 80% of it this year, um, so it also is a good a good tax um, a good tax move to buy a couple airplanes if you've got a lot of income that you need to offset. Interesting. So, yeah, it is. Um, but yeah, training airplane. Hopefully, it will pay for my continued training and um, help me out getting my instrument rating and maybe commercial after that. But yeah, it's a training airplane. It's over there at Bowman Field. Um, they put it on the um, the app for students and it was being rented before we got it back to Bowman Field. At so, two AM. Well it was rented before two AM, right. But that's yeah, it was okay. so yeah that, it's that easy for someone to rent it through the app or whatever it is, right? Oh yeah. I could I could get on the app right now and get a plane for us and we could go over this afternoon and fly. Do you own a boat? I do not own a boat. I don't know if a way to rent it to others. So Oh okay. That's what I was getting at. Is but, that that's the rationale here. Yeah, so I will tell you, um, the only problem with getting a plane is you're not going to be able to find a slot. Like, aviation is big business right now. I'm right. sorry. You're not going to be able to find a slot? Yeah, a, a training slot on the app for a, a time slot. Oh, for okay. The plane. Uh, because aviation is big business right now. Uh, they predict that the pilot shortage will run for at least another nine years, right? And it may run forever, actually. there There is a possibility they will never catch up to the need they have for pilots but right now they're predicting it to run for nine years which means that a lot of people are trying to get trained it's very it's very expensive to be trained to be a pilot Mm -hmm. a very long process and so training schools are full right now there's new flight schools popping up all over the place and so the demand for these training planes is huge Um, that's why I flew down to Naples to fly one back. I didn't tell them to fly it to me. They would have said, no, we're going to sell it to the next guy. Mm. I had to make it as easy as possible for them to sell me this airplane. And it's a, it's got great bones, but all the avionics are inoperable, you know? So it needs new, uh, a new system in it, new autopilot in it. Um, so I'm going to, you know, fix it up, make it nice and make an airplane that I want to fly and that other people want to fly. Your hobbies, jujitsu, right? Correct. Flying. Correct. Am I leaving anything else out? You know, I think those are my two main hobbies right now. Um, and they're big ones. They, I know you're interested in, like, you know, making sure that your money, you're doing smart things with your money and things like that, probably. So that could count as a hobby. I bet you enjoy that. Well, you know, I guess you could count my real estate development as a hobby. But um, I bet you enjoy it. Am I wrong? I do enjoy it. You know, I... You know, practicing law is um, interesting, and I, I think it's got an expiration date. I think you can see a lot of lawyers who practice law a lot longer than they should, and they, mm. usually, 
They mm. usually are very unhealthy and unhappy people. Interesting. Well, yeah, because they're they're in the conflict business, okay? And it's the same thing if you see UFC fighters. They're broken down, you know, they don't have any money, and you're like, oh, what happened? Well, you were fighting your whole life. You were putting your... Well, same thing with law. I mean, you're fighting your whole life. Interesting. I mean, there's all sorts of tactics people use to try to personally influence the other lawyer's, you know, state of mind and health and things like that. Therefore, you devote some of your you know, income to trying to establish other sources of maybe revenue, ways that at some point, maybe not too too far off, you can retire. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I probably make just as much or more money um, from other things outside the law. As wow. In the law right now. Very cool. Yeah, it is. But you know, somebody told me once, they said, being successful is only being able to deal with the people you want to deal with. Mm, I like that. And I said, you know, I will never be successful as a lawyer then. Because I cannot choose, you can't choose your clients as a lawyer, okay? You have to take the cases as a commit. If you, if you start getting okay. picky, you're going to be broke, okay? So I take pretty much any case that I can handle um, that's in my area, I take, okay? And so I've represented, I do injury work, okay? Car accidents. But I've gone- You're an ambulance chaser. Uh, usually the ambulances come to you if you're good enough. Okay. So I- have, Is there any other pejoratives before we move past that, that a personal injury attorney has been called? Well, you know what my grandfather told me, uh, God rest his soul, my grandfather was a great guy and always had jokes or very meaningful things to say about life. And he told me that, he said, Aaron, it's only, it's only, uh, it's only uh, 3% of lawyer jokes um, out there. The rest of them are true, right? So 90%, 97% of lawyer jokes are true. And... <laughs> I mean, he was probably right. What did he do? So he was an interesting guy. He trained to be a pilot um, in World War II, but the war ended before he was able to see any action. And then he went to Fordham University. Um, in, this guy, he was broke. I mean, big family. Dad was an alcoholic who died. Um, my great-grandfather was very successful in the real estate business, except he became an alcoholic and, uh, you know, died. And um, But my his six kids all... All were very successful. All um, had great families, great lives. So my grandfather's older sister is actually still alive. She's 100 years old right now. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, so my grandfather trained um, to be a pilot, and then he went to Fordham University, got a degree in economics, and he actually started law school at NYU. And I said to him, are you sure you don't mean like City College of New York or like New York Law School? He's like, no, I was at NYU. He's like, why didn't you graduate? Why didn't you keep doing that? And he's like, well, you know, after six weeks, I had to, you know, I realized I had to quit and get a job. So he was a salesman all his life. Mm. But he was had a, a tendency toward law. Possibly laid the groundwork for you. Well, you know, it's a funny story. My, my father actually took the LSAT as well. Okay. <laughs> Didn't go to law school. So I guess it was just inevitable, bound to happen. My father was also a pilot in the Army. So you can see some, see some patterns here. And, and he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler, yeah. He wrestled in high school, wrestled on the B team for a year in college. Um, so, yeah, you can see some patterns going there. But, yeah, my grandfather was a salesman, worked multiple jobs all his life, but supported seven kids, sent uh, sent most of his kids to college. This is Mr. Murphy. Yeah, Donald Donald uh, William Murphy. People called him Bill, and a uh, great guy. Always had a joke, always memorized poems, was always, always positive, you know. Um, he said 97% of... Jokes about attorneys are accurate. Yeah, it's it's only 97% <laughs> of uh, lawyer jokes are true. So 
you know, there's a lot of bad things you could say about attorneys. And, you know, one attorney once said something I really uh, took to heart. He said, attorneys are like human garbage men. He said, people bring us their garbage and they expect us to fix it, to take it out, to make it right. And, you know, nobody calls an attorney before they do something. It's always afterwards. And you're like, you know, I wish you'd call me beforehand. I could have told you not to do that. Mm. Um, and that, you know, different things happen. You know, people get into horrible situations. People get injured. And so, you know, I, I think there's only so many dead kids you can see in your life, you know. That's a lot of what your job is. Um, well, too much, too much of what my job is. And, you know, there's only, I mean, I don't know. It, it's, I guess it's a little strange, but, you know, when parents come to you and they, they have a binder full of pictures of their dead child. And, um, yeah, I had a case where a two year old was run over in a parking lot by a girl who was on oxycodones or oxycontin or whatever. And, um, she wasn't prosecuted. Um, she had no insurance. Was she legally? I know that in my opinion, it doesn't matter, but was she legally on those oxycontin? No, no, she was best. We could tell she was going to her dealer's house when it, it was an apartment complex. And these folks were the you know best folks in the world. Damn, very sad. Yeah, I mean, this guy had been a translator for U.S. forces in Iraq, uh, put his family's life at risk, okay? And so the United States government gave visas to certain Iraqis who worked with the U.S. forces, right? So what's this guy thinking? He's thinking, I've got a wife, I've got a son, I've got another son, and we're going to get killed if we stay in Iraq. I am going to take them to the United States where things are safe, where my children will not be killed, and the thing he was trying to escape happened to him in Shelby County, Kentucky. Damn. And By some junkie. Yeah. And his wife was watching her child play. She was watching out the kitchen window and saw this happen. Oh, my God. He said she hasn't talked since. Hasn't spoke. I mean, not, not this, much. Has been, this has been a year. But, but really, yeah, I mean, impact her. Well, you know, I mean, I've got kids. And I'll tell you. You delivered one of them at your house. I did, yeah. We talked about that last time. You <laughs> Sorry. Know, um, you know, Marcus Aurelius, in his meditations, you know, said, do not pray to God that your child will not die. He said, pray to God that you will not fear your child dying. Mm. And Could you repeat that? Yeah. Marcus Aurelius said, do not pray to God that your child will not die. Pray to God that you will not fear your child dying. Marcus Aurelius okay. lost several of his children. Wow. Three of his children died. And I, the only thing I'm scared of, right? I mean, if something bad happened to me, yeah, that would be, that would be sad. But if something happened to one of my children, that would be something that I could never recover from, right? That's the parent's only fear. But the problem is, when you have that fear, that damages the life that you have with your child now. You know, it mm. takes away because you're already you're already allowing a part of them to die if you're afraid sure. of them dying. I've got a 16, a 15, and a 14-year-old. My stepdaughter, Carla, yeah. will be driving. She takes her driver, final driver's test next week. Right. So it's, it'll be just right there. So that's a, yeah. a, a significant thing for all parents that are listening. Sure. And you have wonderful children. Your your children are Thank you. You know, better children than I would have expected. <laughs> You know, I'll take that. Given knowing you. Um, Thank you. And, you know, my children are better children than you would have expected for knowing they me. They are very sweet kids. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, man, this is, I, this very is a blessing, blessing to be their parents. So to see the hole 
that is punched in a person's life. I mean, it never gets filled in. And I've dealt with so many parents who grieve over the loss of their children. And um, they do it in different ways. And I've seen parents whose children have died at different ages. Um, I worked with a family whose daughter was drowned in a, a swimming pool oh my recently. And, you know, you can always tell whether that that family had a good relationship with that child or not. Um, by how they by how they handle their their death and if there was a bad relationship if there was a broken relationship those parents are unconsolable they they mm. are angry they have rage because there can never be any closure and they try to hold on to the case they try to hold on to the conflict because they're trying to compensate for the bad relationship they had because they know they should have been a better parent right but then you have other parents who look at you and say no amount of money will ever bring back the happiness they don't even care about the money that our daughter brought to our life wow do what you can and let them move on Hmm. their houses look like shrines to their children but i i can never judge critique or comment on what a person's going through like that Mm mm-hmm because I can't imagine it. I don't want to imagine it. I don't want to know about it. I never, I'm, I'm scared. That's the one thing that I fear. That's fair. Right? I, I can relate. And so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's only so much conflict you can handle in your life. And especially, you know, people who are, um, you know, defending these cases and saying, oh, well, you know, your kid died because you're an unfit parent or your kid died because they were a horrible person. Wow. Well, you know what? I mean, Maybe there's a special place in hell reserved for people like that. Fair. Maybe there's not. You know, I don't know. I mean, there's people who criticize what I do and say, oh, you're just trying to get money for people. And unfortunately, the civil law does convert everything to money. Yeah, I mean, it is. But, um, you know, money is not money. You know, money is not just money. And we all know that deep down. I mean, money is respect. Money is a way of valuing things. It's crude. Yeah, it is. But... Um, it is a measure of work, you know, that people do. It's a measure of uh, not necessarily happiness, but it is a measure of a lot of things that are akin to happiness, you know. Um, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, not having money, this and that, uh, won't, they, money won't bring back a person. But, you know, money does mean something in people's lives. And there is a place, you know, there's a, there are houses people move into when they have money that provide their family hopefully a safer location. There are schools people send their kids to when they have money. And so money is a proxy for a lot of the benefits of the American dream in life. And so um, it's not crazy to convert things to money under the civil law, but it is crude. It doesn't, it's not a one-to-one. Um, Aaron, I've known you for over seven years. You're very well-spoken. Your speech is able to evoke emotion. You have done a good job, in my eyes, of not aligning yourself with a particular political party that I know of, okay, at all. Sure. Is there a possibility of a future in politics for Aaron Murphy? No, none whatsoever. Um, And, you know, one of the reasons is, um, you know, personality-wise, I'm... I don't like, I don't like being shallow. I don't like small talk. Um, I don't like, you know, 
trying to be everybody's friend. <laughs> you don't like having uh, to hang out. You kind of touched on that earlier, and that right. you don't like to have to answer to people. <laughs> that, 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 no, I don't. That you don't want to. You you you'd like to be able to choose to hang out with who you want to. I do, and but you know, I, I ran for office in uh, in law school, and I was part of the student government. Um, but I ran for student bar president in law school, and uh, I lost that. And I think some of it was because. It was a little smear campaign by my opponent because I'm a felon and I have a felony. Wow. Yeah. Can, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, I know. Can you do wow. Dropping, dropping. Uh, whoa. Got, break, breaking news. Whoa. Can, yeah. Uh, Kelly Patrick podcast. Can, can, we, can we dive into that a little bit? Let's dive into it, bro. So, yeah. Um, when I was in college, I printed money on a computer. All right. And... Yeah, I mean, I'm not immune to stupid ideas, and I'm not immune to really bad, bad thinking and bad ideas. Okay, and I know that about myself. So, yeah, when I was in college, I, you know, and I was not doing right in college. You know, um, do you mind saying what college? Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll tell you the whole story. Yeah, we we'll, 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 we'll can't hold anything back because University of Kentucky. So, you know, when I told you about that Marcus Aurelius quote, I said, "Do not be afraid of your children. Uh, don't pray that your children won't die. Be afraid that you won't." Um, pray that you won't be afraid they die. And so, you know, my dad uh, was a military officer in the army, great guy, um, you know, really legit. I mean, whatever you see is what you get with my dad. And he's very kind, very, but um, he, he lived a very good life. And I think the one thing he was afraid of in life was that his son was going to get on drugs and go to prison. Well, that's what happened. His son got on drugs and went to prison. So I was at the University of Kentucky, you know, just doing dumb stuff, but Eventually, dumb stuff becomes criminal stuff, and then you think, oh, I was just doing some dumb stuff. But you look back, and you're like, eh. that was not just dumb. That was criminal. So, Were you addicted to drugs? I don't say I was addicted. I mean, I you know, was smoking a lot of weed. Didn't even like weed, right? But people, you know, social, you know, people are like, eh, well, let's go smoke some weed. So um, used a lot of marijuana um, and some other drugs. Got into some harder drugs and, um, you know, just partying, you know, doing really stupid things that weren't going to... Um, weren't going to get me where I wanted to go in life because I, I did think I want to be a lawyer. You know, I had some business law classes and I was like, yeah, maybe I want to be a lawyer. But um, I was at the University of Kentucky and I was an RA in the dorm. And uh, I was friends with some other guys in the hall and, you know, we'd just hang out and do dumb stuff together. And one of them came in one day and he said, hey, I've been down to Western Kentucky and I had got a friend and look what we did. We printed 10 $100 bills on an all-in-one printing machine. And they looked horrible. They were like, you know, really bad. And he was like, what do you think we should do with them? I was like, well, you could probably buy some weed with these. And so he went out and bought like, you know, they, you know, went out and got, got a little weed, whatever. And I was like trying to be good. I was not because I wanted to be good because I wanted to go to law school. And so I was like studying, studying for my classes, studying for the LSAT, you know, doing my job in the dorm. And, um, so he said, yeah, you know, we got, we got some weed, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, well, that's great. You know, whatever. He comes back to me. It's like, hey, one of these guys, so I think, and I think some other people knew that it was fake, but they, they were in on the deal. But anyway, he said, one of them came back to us and he wants to buy, he wants to buy a bunch of counterfeit money. Right. I mean, you can see how dumb this is, right? So I was like, really? Well, I mean, we were all broke. And so we went out and bought a printer. And got his computer, <laughs> set it up, and we're printing money. And they said, we need $5,000 in counterfeit money. We'll pay you. Right? And I was like, okay. So, because 
I always want to solve people's problems. Right? I am a natural born problem solver, people pleaser. You know, you come to me with a problem, I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And the fact that it was illegal, I mean, it wasn't that big of, it should have been a bigger red flag in my life. It should have been like, no, there's a line there. We don't cross that line. That's, you know, I should, I, yeah, I, I get it. I should have known better. Yeah. I did know better. You know, it wasn't. Legally, you, you, you thought about it, that it was a felony? Yes, but you know when you're 20 and you're doing. Oh, I do. I do. I do. And this guy, yes, I do. I do. So, yeah, I mean, I did. And I, one thing I always want to make sure is front and center when I tell these stories. I have no excuses. I take responsibility. These actions are indefensible. And I give myself like zero leeway. Okay. So, yes, I knew it was wrong. I, yeah, I have no excuses. It's a bad, wrong thing to do. But I said, yeah, we can sell. I mean, we're not like passing it at, you know, Walmart. We're not screwing everybody. We're selling it to somebody who knows this kind of thing. Whatever. And yeah, I mean, it's stupid logic. So then the call came in. We were making this up. The call came in. We need $10,000. We'll give you more money, $10,000. Right? And so we got the $10,000. It was really hard. Okay. It was hard to print money. It's like, it's easier to make money legitimately than it is actually to print it on a page because you got to get both pages. You got to get colors right. You got like, it is hard. And they didn't even look good. Okay. They didn't look, even look good. So shit. there was, um, it might've been a Monday. I don't know. Is it was like the 21st of October, I think 2001. And so we're supposed to meet these guys over at Turflin mall, Lexington. And, you know, I didn't have a car, so another guy drove us over there, and um, there was the guy that was talking to the guys, and so he got out with the money, went to the car, you know, mm. gave him this money, the parking lot of Mall. It was like the movies. Car pulls up behind us, car pulls up on the other side. These guys jump out with MP5s, blue bulletproof vests with gold stars. United States Secret Service, get your hands up. My hands floated up. <laughs> Guy pulls me out of the car, puts me up in the car. I've still got an indent in the back of my head from where he shoved his gun. Um, yeah, and so we went, we went down to the Secret Service station, went to jail. Spent a little while in the jail there in Lexington. Who's we? Uh, no names, but, but but you and a few of your friends. Yeah, obviously, well, I'm not okay. saying to so, mention names, yeah. but like you had a few of your buddies. How many people were taken down for this? So it was actually a, f- a few because, and there were people that I didn't even know about. Um, people I didn't even know about on the other side um, that were kind of involved in. Um, I guess some of the people that w- had gotten some of the other money, I don't know. There was, there was a few. There was like one, two, three people that I knew. Um, and then there was the guy that I guess told on us and set us up. Um, I don't think he went to jail, but maybe at the time it, they made it look, who knows? They may, if it's secret service, maybe they arrest that guy, make it look like he was arrested with you or who, I don't even know what that's very fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it was, and I, I really think maybe they thought they were getting a bigger group than just a couple dumb college kids. Maybe they were hoping that it, you know, I mean, um, so anyway, went to jail, went, got charged federally after that and started going to federal court and I got a lawyer and this lawyer was a great guy. His name was Ken Fouts in Lexington. Uh, great guy, great Christian guy. And he was so encouraging to me. He was like, you know, Aaron, uh, you're in a bad situation, but you know, you can, 
you know, you can get past this. God will help you through it. And, you know, my dad was very encouraging too. And so I had a judge um, in Lexington, got sentenced to 15 months in federal prison. Judge Joseph Hood uh, is the judge that sentenced me there in Lexington. And in the federal system, you serve 85% of your time. Okay. So I went to prison, did my sentence in Talladega, Alabama. You did and exactly 15? So you do about a year. So you do 85% of your time. So 85% okay. of 15 months, about, about a year. And then came back. And so life was a lot harder. Was it a, what, what type of prison was it? So most federal prisons are designed with a prison and then a camp next to them to support the prison. Some military bases also have a camp to support the base. And so I was in the camp, and there's an FCI, Federal Correctional Institution at Talladega, where the guys with longer sentences go, and I was at the camp next door. Okay. Now, the funny story is there was a fence around the camp. Okay. Some camps have fences, some don't. But the reason this camp had a fence, they got it about three years before I was there, is because one day one of the correctional officers went to the local bar and saw a couple of the inmates drinking. Because the inmates would sneak away at night and then come back during the day. So you don't really try to escape from a camp a lot because the penalty is a lot worse than the sure. sentence. So you have a lot of freedom at the camp. If you have a job outside the fence, they open the fence in the day and you can go to your job. So you were working. You work on the, yeah. So I had several different jobs. I worked in the kitchen for a while. I got a very nice job working in the commissary for a little while. And then I got a job working in the warehouse um, there. And so a lot of the time, well, about half the time I was working outside the fence. You come back inside the fence. Uh, they had little golf carts you could drive around, but you had to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, wow. if you were if you were goofing off, you were sure one going to get. Thrown but back most in the people probably weren't. They were like, "Hey, I know I'm in prison. I better not screw this up." Right, because you don't want to go to a worse prison, right? You don't sure. want to go to the whole. <laughs> I would think that's a priority. And I would so think. I probably actually I probably met more lawyers in that prison than I'd ever met before in my life. There were three lawyers there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that's the type of prison, too. Yeah. That's the camp thing, right? So it's it was not gen pop. Well, right, yeah. They're very good. In the federal system, they're very good about um, screening people and putting them into the right group. So, you know, people have these ideas about prison. And so people always ask me, they're just going, I'm like, oh, what was it like? I mean, are, you, you, you okay? got the drop the soap? So, I mean, the thing is, it was not a... I actually tell people it's the best year of my life, okay? Okay. Um, because I got to reset. I got to think about things. And there were guys in there who'd spent most of their life in prison, and they'd worked their way down. You know, they were on the tail end of their 20, 25-year sentences. And they said, Aaron, don't be like me. You're too smart to be in here. Why are you doing this? All the young guys were planning the next score, right? And they were like, yeah, next time I'm not going to get But the older guys... Advising you. Yeah. And they were so you going into prison, you had already wanted to be an attorney. This year... A very, very focused thinking really compounded your momentum. So I'm guessing you hit the ground running right when you got out. Well, yeah. So that's a little problem because everybody's like, well, you ain't going to be an attorney no more. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know how does that work. Well, it works hard. So when I got out, I had to finish up college. Couldn't go back to the University of Kentucky. They had banned me from the campus. Okay, I was persona non grata at the University of Kentucky. It's a lifetime ban. You will never step. I know you're a Louisville fan. Does the, your relationship with UK feed into you being more of a Cards fan? No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't a sports fan at all at the time. And I'm going to okay. tell you. I'm going to tell you why I became a University of Louisville fan. Okay, um, I finished up at Murray, and I met a wonderful college advisor, Dr. Rose, down there, who was just an absolute uh, blessing to me. Great supporter of mine. I fly the plane down to Murray, and I have lunch with him. Um, 
you know, and I, I talked to him, I was like, Hey, you know, so while I was on bond, you know, while I was waiting for my court case to go through, I, um, I took one semester at Murray, right? Before I went to prison then two more after I got back and I met him and I was like, Hey, you know, would you write a letter to the judge for me? And he was like thinking, he said, yeah, I thought he had a DUI. When I told him what I was like under an, federal felony indictment. He was like, uh, that's a lot. That's a big ask, but he did. And, uh, he was a big supporter of mine and uh, big fan, but not everybody was a big fan. Okay. Um, I will tell you the pre-law advisor at Murray. Um, he once told me, and this is a weird thing to say. He said, you are lower than whale shit. And he said, people like you should not be given a second chance. They should not go to law school. And you think he, to this day, he still thinks you're a piece of shit, even though you've had honest success for years? No, I, I don't. I don't. And so I, I got to say this, and I, I reference this story because I think there's a line out of a Rudyard Kipling poem that says, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. Hmm. Like, I have to make allowance for his perspective because in one sense, he wasn't wrong. You know, he had lots of students who've been working very hard, very hard to go to law school, but they couldn't score well on the test and they might not have got the opportunity to go to law school. I, on the other hand, just come out of prison, you know, getting pretty good grades, just aced the test, knocked it out of the park. I, I think it was the highest score he'd ever seen at that point that somebody had gotten. And he was like, are you kidding me? This guy is, I was still on supervised release. I was still meeting with probation officers, getting drug tested four times a month. And I'm applying to law schools where he's got kids who are legitimately good people mm -hmm. who are not, not able to get the first shot. So I have to realize that he was right in that yeah. sense. So I applied to 11 law schools. All 11 should have accepted me. What, based on your score? Yeah. Now, only one did. Which one was that? U L. That's why you're a fan. Yes, because no matter what happens, and my time at L wasn't all good. I mean, there were people who tried to get me kicked off of things and because of the, yeah, yeah. People. Right. <laughs> and, and yeah, the, so this is not a, this is a secret to a lot of the people listening who know you through jujitsu, mm -hmm. but within the law community, this is not a secret. It's not, a, I mean, there are people at jujitsu, I mean, Scott Smith knows, and like, I've talked to other people about it, but it's not something that I wear on my sleeve, but it's also something that I like keep a secret because I never want somebody to be like, Ooh, I found out something about you, you know? So your kids know? Um, yeah, they do. Interesting. I've shared that with him because, you know, my father was such a good guy. I felt oppressed by my father's goodness. <laughs> if it's, you know, I felt like I'm never going to be this guy. I'm never, I don't want to be as good as he is, you know, and. How is that? I'm, so, I'm sorry. How is that relevant? You were oppressed by his goodness. Well, I don't want my kids to think that they can't be better than me. I see. I want my kids to know they can be better than me. I, I want to tell them, don't make this mistake. But made. They, they're not going to be thinking of you as being a piece of shit. You're flying your son across the state for ice cream. Trust me, they're going to view you in a similar light. I understand. I follow that I have a strange feeling that's not going to apply. Well, and maybe so, but I, I want to be honest with who I am. Okay? That's right. I don't want to be going through life saying, oh, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. I made all the reasons. I'm a bad person. I've done bad things, and it's only the grace of God that I have any of these blessings, right? And so I got to be honest about that. I'm, I didn't deserve these things. I didn't earn these things. Mm -hmm. right? And um, I want to finish this story because there's a, a couple sure. of good tie-ins here. But yesterday while I was flying in the plane, I got a text from one of my best friends in high school. And he went to the funeral for another guy we knew in high school yesterday. And this guy lived a horrible, twisted life. 
and died a horrible, twisted death. Okay. And when I think about him, I think, I mean, we always think like, why couldn't that have been me? It could have been me, right? And so I'm really a kind of person which I always say, you know, but for the grace of God, that was me. And so, I mean, because he got on drugs and he went to prison and blah, blah, blah. So, so getting back to the story, it was not easy. Um, when I was applying for law schools, you know, I had to come up and I had to talk to the dean of students at the time. And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> this, is a, this is a hard ask. You know, why should you get into, you know, UofL? And they graciously allowed me to get in and allowed me to um, go to law school. But it wasn't guaranteed that I'd be able to take the bar. And so I called the chairman of the character and fitness committee. I said, Hey, you know, I, I, I've got this going on in my background. I, I want to go to law school. And he said, great, <laughs> go to law school if you want. He said, we don't give, um, advanced opinions. He said, you apply and we decide if you're a person of good character, then wow. <laughs> so you got to go to the, wow. You got to go to all the school, all the classes. And then there was a chance you're going to get out. I went to school. You're a risk taker. I went at, at your right. <laughs> clearly, I mean, clearly. Yeah, I guess we figured that out. Um, Safe statement. So we, I go through law school, right? And it's a great experience. I love law school. Okay, it was sort of the college experience I didn't have. I went to four different colleges. Okay, and I I enjoyed UK, but probably somewhat for the wrong reasons. But I did enjoy my classes. I did enjoy what I was learning, and I was always kind of like the split person you know like I had good things going on but I also was had this Achilles heel of like partying yeah I mean yeah I mean, just debauchery well sure because you know I wanted to be liked I wanted to have friends and you know I mean you know me I'm, I'm not the funniest guy in the world and it's hard for me to have friends but it's you know if you want to do something wrong then you know you're not gonna have that many buddies doing something wrong with you so I'm your guy right <laughs> I know it's, it's twisted um but I got to I got to learn a few things about myself and learn that there was a line in the world and you don't cross that line right and so I um, I went to law school, and every year I would call the chairman of the character fitness committee, and I would check in with them and say, hey, you know, I'm still doing good. I'm still going. So at the end of law school, I applied for the bar, and I had to go to a hearing. And I went to a hearing, and they asked me a lot of hard questions. And um, Approximately what year? It's 2007 yeah. when I graduated. year I graduated college. And then I got an opinion from them. They said, no, you may not take the Kentucky bar. And I, I was... You know, I mean, I was crushed. I was upset, but it wasn't like I didn't know that was a possibility. In fact, kind of expected it. Yeah, and and in hindsight, that was the right decision for them to make. By the way, okay, all right, um, because there are, you know, practicing law is a privilege, and it's a trust. It's a sacred trust um, that he would they would even consider me. Right, that was, you know, was a huge blessing. And so I said, okay, great. Well, I'm gonna apply to you next time. So the bar is offered every six months. I applied the next time. And they said, it hasn't even been long enough for you to apply. We're not even going to consider your application. I said, great. Well, I'll apply to you next time. So I was working at Starbucks, you know, just... Really? Literally working at Starbucks? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of educated people working at Starbucks, um, oddly enough. Um, but yeah, I was one of one of the educated people working at Starbucks. So I uh, came around again. It's summer 2008. Applied again. And... Uh, you know, and I was in very close communication with the, the people working at the bar and different people there. And um, I don't want to say they, they were always very nice. They were always very cordial and polite. Uh, they never said, oh, well, you know, you have done these things and so you should never. But they said, hey, this is, we have to be very serious about the people we admit to the bar. And they do, by the way. I mean, I, I support that. And if I was in their position, I'm not sure, you know, I, I would have made the exact same decision. I'm not sure I wouldn't have kept me out for longer. 
honestly. So um, after the first time you were denied until you were accepted, how long? One year. Okay. So in 2008, they said, okay, you can sit for the bar. All right. And you had a unique focus, clearly, that you were okay, sit for the bar, passed it your first time? So one thing about me is I'm a pretty good test taker. Okay. Um, I... You were my partner on the purple belt test. I, you are, I, I can attest. And we both passed. Right? We both passed. And to be fair, you helped me out. Well, um, well, I'm glad. If I did, I'm glad. Um, but, you know, I, I have a, when it comes to test taking, I mean, I have a singular focus. And sure, yeah, going through, uh, going through all that, there was no way I was going to pass that test. <laughs> but so. not only that, once you passed it, you probably started taking some risks. Like, I don't want to go intern somewhere, or right? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. No. <laughs> I can imagine it's just like, I'm doing my own thing. No, hold on, hold on. Okay. No. I had a job working at a uh, real estate title company at that point. And um, the, my only boss-in-law, D.A. Andrews, uh, love him like he's my uncle. He's a great guy. He gave me a chance, right? My life is all about people who give me a chance. And he gave me a chance, and so I worked as an attorney at his office, but the real estate crash caused us to slide off a cliff, and then in 2010, I, I did start my own business. Um, so a couple years in. But I always kept in touch with Ken, my attorney, and uh, we always went to lunch when I was in Lexington, and he was always so happy to see my progress. And um, he said, you know, you, you should go talk to Judge Hood. You should go. You should, I always tell him about you when I when I go in front of him, and he would just love to hear from you. Now, I don't really know that Judge Hood said he would love to hear from me. I think Ken, being such a nice, I mean, this guy was so nice. I mean, just a great human being. Um, uh, he represented me for free, by the way. Wow. When I was a college student, yeah, in federal, on a federal case. Um, great, great human being. I mean, love that guy. And so we'd always get lunch, and uh, he said, you know, Judge Hood would really love to hear. So... It was about, I forget how many years after I'd been licensed, but it was a few. I was over in Lexington on a, a dumb court appearance in the court next door, and it's right next to the federal courthouse. And I'd always told Ken, nah, you know, it's not time, you know, it's not. But that day, I said, you know what? I'll go talk to Judge Hood. And I just walked into the court, and I told the marshals, I said, hey, I'm an attorney, and, you know, I want to go talk to Judge Hood. I said, great, go on up. And went to Judge Hood's secretary. I said, hey, my name's Aaron Murphy. I, I'd like to talk to the judge. And so... She said, yeah, he's good timing. He's about to go to lunch. He went and sat down in his office, and he said, yeah, I remember you. He said, yeah, I'm glad you're doing well. And he said, we talked for 20 minutes just about my case, about other things, about my life. And you know what's interesting is whenever I've talked to judges, and I'm sure all judges aren't like this, but judges who are judges and lifetime judges, and they, I did an externship with a judge here in, in Louisville, and he was like this too. They care a lot more than you think mm. right? because their their position is not a caring position, right? Their position is a, a law position, you know. They're the umpire, you know. Nobody likes the umpire, right? I mean, they're calling balls and strikes, but you need the umpire to play the game, right? Sure. And so we need judges. And, you know, he, he cared a lot more than I thought he did or that he showed from the bench. And he was kind of known as a hanging judge, you know, a judge who just gives out harsh sentences. And, you know, we had asked, like, I get diversion, you know, and maybe not go to prison. And he was like, no, I'm calling down the middle. He gave me the right down the middle of the sentence. So he, this guy's looking you in the eye knowing that you accepted his sentence. You actually served a year in prison. Yeah. Then you ended up reaching a degree of success on your own, and you were coming back to him, not to, not with any malice, not trying to, you know, instead just kind of, I told wanted him, to reach you. out to him. Oh, okay. I told him thank you. And, you know, I, I appreciated that. I appreciated the sentence. I mean, because it's like punishment. Nobody likes punishment, 
when it's happening, right? Mm. But that punishment helped me. And, you know, it's a blessing that every the way things turned out, it could have been a lot different, right? Things could have gone, like my life could have not taken a, a turn for the better. But Certainly. it did, and he was a part of that, right? And if he'd just given me a diversion, if he just said, yeah, you know, first-time offense, you know, white kid from, you know, college, made a mistake, you know, but he gave it to me right down the middle, right down the middle of the federal sentencing guidelines. So, you know, I didn't get, you know, I didn't get any special treatment. I got the regular treatment. And there was some wisdom in that. There was some wisdom in the law giving me the treatment that the law prescribes. So I went in there and, you know, he said, okay, well, I got a little lunch now. He said, don't let me down. You haven't yet. And I was like, wow. You know, that's, you haven't yet. He said, you haven't yet. Wow. That like, meant something to you. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes federal judges, you know, the biggest person you're ever going to talk to in life. I mean, these guys are like, you know, um, that's pretty high. It's a pretty high level of prestige to be a federal judge. And you get a federal judge that takes 20 minutes out of his day to talk to you and then tell you, yeah, I know I sent you to prison, but you haven't disappointed me yet. I mean, yeah, that's huge. Is there the potential for you to pursue something like that? Well, um, it sounds to me like there's an emotional uh, place in your heart for some of those federal judges, apparently, or at least that role. Is that something that would be appealing? Well, okay, so that's another story. I mean, probably not. I mean, I don't think my I don't think my career path is going that direction. And uh, there are reasons for that, but um, I wanted to sew sew a couple ends of this story up, though, because you know I, I did start my own firm and it, it was great, and I became you know pretty successful but um a couple of years ago i got a i got a note that uh, ken had died oh my goodness he okay. passed away and ken is the attorney who yeah. gave you your first chance yeah he was the attorney who represented me yes um and i was i was really sad about that you know because he was such a great person you know He's, how did you meet him originally he was my lawyer i mean but, but but my dad was calling around for lawyers, and he he said, "Hey, well, I'm, he was called a couple friends of his to get a lawyer, and they said, hey, maybe you call this guy Ken.' He and he was just a great guy. He was like, "Yeah, I'll take your case, and um, I know you can't afford to pay me anything, so I'll do it for free." And because he was kind of intrigued by the case, or what? He was in a position where he had re- reached success, where he saw it to be some degree of risk, but something that could possibly be fulfilling for him. So to him, it was a fulfilling thing to do. What is it, pro bono? Yeah, you know, he told me he always wanted to be a preacher, a pastor, and uh, God made him be an attorney, so he just tried to, you know, help as many people as he could, so, and uh, yeah, and he was just, he helped people all the time, he was always, always doing nice things for people. Um, and, and he passed, when was that? I think it was uh, 2021. Okay, and that had an impact on you? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it was COVID, and I don't know if he died of COVID or not, um, nobody puts that in the in the notices, but he could have, Um but yeah, and so that's why I hadn't been elected to see him for a little while because the courts were shut down. It was COVID, and you know nobody's going anywhere. And so we got the note from his family, you know, with the Christmas cards. They get a Christmas card from him every year, and they said, "Yeah, Kenny passed away this year." And so I was like, "Oh man," because it almost felt like we had a relationship that was going to go on forever. You know, he's my men- he was a mentor to me as a lawyer now because, you know, he, you know, we'd talk about cases, and you know, you know, I, I don't know. Anyway. So shortly after that, I got a email notice that, and it was an invitation. It was an invitation to Judge Hood's retirement mm. celebration. Because I'm a lawyer and I'm licensed in the Eastern District, and you know, so it went out to all lawyers. It wasn't to be special, but it okay, went out to okay, all the lawyers. Okay. And you know, Ken was always like, "Oh, you should go talk to Judge Hood." So I did that time, 
But, you know, every time he's like, oh, well, I've been telling the judge about you. Every time I see him, and he's so proud of you, blah, 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 which was obviously Ken shine on it. But, you know, I, and I don't think Judge Hood wasn't proud of me. But I, you know, Ken always made things, you know, so rosy, you know, and it's great. Um, so I said, you know, Ken would want me to go to this. Ken would want me to go to this, you know, since I had a Judge Hood. I mean, the last time I ever get a chance to see him. I mean, he's, you know, leaving the bench and I'd never practiced a case in front of him. You know, I never had a, a case that went in front of him or anything like that. So, um, I said, okay. So I drove over to Lexington and, uh, a lot of attorneys there, a lot of attorneys there. There's a reception at the courthouse. So I waited and, you know, people were going up and saying hi to him. And so at the end I walked up to him and I said, you know, hi Judge Hood, you know, it's Aaron Murphy, you know, remember me? He looked at me and said, yeah, I remember you. And I gave my phone to one of the marshals to say, hey, will you take a picture of us? So we got a picture together. And he said to me, he said, you know, I always remember you. And I always tell, I always talk about you. He said, I don't say your name, but, you know, he said, I always tell people, you know, you can do well. You can turn this around. You can, you know, you can make something in your life. I know somebody who did it. Wow. And I don't want to be the exception that proves the rule, you know, that people can't change. Wow. But it is possible, you know, it's possible that even when you're afraid that your son's going to get on drugs and go to prison, that's not the end of the story. Mm, okay, okay, tying it back. It's not the end of the story. Um, you know, now people are always surprised to hear that story. and They're like, what? I would have never imagined. And it was more than half a lifetime ago, more than half my life ago, right? But I, I don't want it to be one of those things where... Um, I'm scared to talk about it, you know, because I'm like, I have this reputation as a lawyer to defend and I look great. I'm not a great person. I'm just a person who God has blessed and, you know, who people decided not to throw away. Are you religious? Um, I would say I'm pretty religious. I mean, I love God. Okay. I believe that he has guided my life at every point. I have seen his hand working. I mean, how would you explain it? <laughs> That's fair. How would you yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, people, and you know, it's like people who said, "Oh, we shouldn't have these opportunities." They're right. I shouldn't have, but God gave me these opportunities wow. not because I deserve them, but because He's gracious. Because He is literally standing there at every turn in your life, saying, "I want to bless you. If you do what I want you to do, I am going to give you more than you could ask or imagine." You know what? If while I was in law school, you told me, "Hey," You will have one tenth of the success that I've had. I would have said you're lying. I would have said that's beyond what is possible. But with God, all things are possible. So yeah, no, I I, I believe that God has been instrumental at every every turn of my life, the good and the bad. And you know, in, in Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, um, you know, God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. And, you know, a lot of people struggle to find the good. And, I, you know, I'm talking about being successful and getting, you know, obviously getting um, a good result. And there's lots of people who don't get that good result. Like that like that guy I knew that I talked about yesterday, you know. You just found out, passed away yesterday, you found out. Yeah. And he was always troubled. Very troubled. I mean, basically he uh, probably went insane doing hard drugs and bath salts and things like that. Wow. Was in prison, was released early from prison on a compassionate release. 
because he was dying of cancer. Oh, wow. And they believe that he was going to be put in an insane asylum if he was not, and not already dying. Wow. And he was just a guy, he was a regular guy, goofy guy like me, you know. You went, graduated high school with him? No, he was actually part of my church youth group. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, he, he, I don't know which, I, I don't think he went to my high school. Um, but he was someone from your, your childhood that you'd always yeah, we, stayed somewhat in touch with. Um, yeah, we were pro- sort of like second degree friends. I mean, he was more of a friend with my other friend that I, I talked about. Over the years, someone's going down that path. I'm guessing Aaron Murphy, 2011 or 12 version of Aaron Murphy, wasn't hanging around people doing bath salts. No, not at all. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing, though, where if you'd ask when I was 14 or 15, you know, what, you know, voted most likely to, you know, uh, get in trouble and go to prison. I mean, some people would have put me on that list, right? Mm. And, me too. Know, to some extent. Me too. Right. To yeah, yeah, yeah. You some did, you right. did go to prison. Right. Um, so, yeah, when you ask me a question like, hey, you're going to get into politics, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> Nobody wants to elect their friendly neighborhood felon to be, you know, the representative. Is that accurate? Felons don't get elected? Um, so, to wrap up a couple other ends of this, I actually got my rights back, okay? And that doesn't include the right to sit on a jury or own a firearm, okay? So, but I got my rights to vote, run for public office back. Um, and so, I actually was selected for jury duty while I was an attorney, and I sent them the form that says I'm not eligible to serve on a jury. So I've argued cases to juries 12 or 13 times. And that's one thing that I can't do is sit on a jury. Um, so I got the rights back. And I also wrote to the university of Kentucky, by the way, uh, when I was in law school, there was going to be a UK UFL football game and the UK and UFL law schools have a flag football game before that uh, real football game. And so it was going to be at UK. Now, not that anybody would have checked or known, but I was not supposed to set foot on UK's campus. I was um, suspended and banned from the campus indefinitely. So I wrote the dean of students, the same dean of students. I wrote him a letter and I said, hey, look, you know, here's where I am. I'm, I'm at school at UofL. I don't think I, I, I'm never planning on applying again to the University of Kentucky. Okay, I'm, educationally, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not asking to reply, but I would like to deal with the suspension, you know, and, and get that over. And he wrote me back and he said, you're not suspended anymore. Feel free to come on campus anytime. Wow. So, yeah, and um, I think that, uh, you know, those sort of, of sorts of things are important. I mean, it, not that I could make up for what I did, but I, I guess there was some sort of reconciliation. There was some sort of sure. acknowledgement that... There's um, worse things that people have done than print fake $100 bills. I know that that sounds like a cop-out to you. <laughs> but, but if I find out someone... You know, murder would be bad. Repeated cases of beating women would be bad. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of stuff that could be pretty bad. To me, the 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 the, the forging, you know, hundred dollar bills obviously is a felon. Obviously, that's the type of thing that gets you in prison. It was very dumb, but I don't think it's the worst. Well, right? No, I mean, I I know people have murdered their wives, and uh, you know, I mean, one of my dad's best friend killed his wife, and you know, is in prison, you know, still to this day. Wow. Yeah, he's the guy who gave me my first scooter as a kid. He met his wife in Bible college, and they were, you know, great people. And all of a sudden, you know, he kills her. And uh, he actually was also sentenced for conspiracy to hire somebody to kill the investigating officer and the prosecutor. <laughs> yeah, and so, but what I'm saying is this. The same dumb decision-making that, sure, I mean, maybe 
You'd say, well, printing money. I mean, uh-huh, that's stupid I would have stuff. maybe been down for something like that. Maybe. I don't know. I was very dumb when I was that age. Well, sure. But, I mean, it's the same bad decision making. I mean, it's the same thing that leads you down the road to say, well, there's, I can blur this line. Okay. There's not a line here. And so, and I hope I would never harm you, another human being. I mean, um, despite doing jujitsu and, you know, you know, simulating, you know, you know, moves that break people's arms and things like that. I mean, I hope that I've renounced violence. You know, I hope that I would always try to take peaceful, you know, and loving means to re- resolve things. But, you know, all of us are susceptible to bad thinking. And Interesting. That's a very fascinating uh, uh, direction for, for uh, you know, for, for topics because like the Nuremberg trials and, you know, you look back at so many people who got involved with, if you and I were in Nazi Germany in 1931 or I don't know, pre-Nazi Germany, you know, could we have possibly done some horrible things? We would kind of be lying if we said no. Well, it could have happened. If you look at the people that have studied this and have talked about that, they say, absolutely, you have to look at yourself like, I would be like that. Now, every one of us thinks, well, I would be the good guy. (laughs) Now, I was visiting my professor, my old uh, college advisor, last week. I flew down to see him, and uh, he has a a museum of sorts that he's curated in his garage. And a lot of the stuff is clippings from World War II. And he has a, two pictures. Um, one is of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And one is of a, he's got a very long German name. And he's like Vaughn this and that. And he pointed them out to me. And this Nazi soldier or Nazi officer uh, that he has a picture of, actually was the person who led the Valkyrie plot to kill Hitler. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a preacher, a pastor who went, who was outside of Germany, went back into Germany, into Nazi Germany, and died in a concentration camp, basically resisting the Nazi empire. And we all think we're going to be those guys. We we all think, yeah, I'm Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Look, I've read his books. (laughs) I am never going to be on that man's level. That guy was amazing. He was a saint. He was a giant of philosophical and religious thinking. Um, but yeah, we all think, but you know what? We're all, we're all very prone to making little compromises. Um, and I think, I, I think it's problematic to get too much into that situation, what's happening because, um, it is very easy to criticize and critique, but a lot of those guys knew what they were doing was wrong. And they, they morally compromised because they thought they were going to win and they thought there was personal benefit to it. So, you know, I think what's even more interesting is if you study more ancient civilizations like the Assyrians. I mean, the Assyrians made the Nazis look like poster boys, right? And um, if you listen to Dan Carlin's hardcore history on the Assyrians, I mean, it's stuff that will, I mean, it will curdle your blood what they were doing. And they were doing it openly. They did not, they weren't hiding it. The Nazis hid a lot of stuff they were doing for the world. Um, and so it, and, you know, the news wasn't as um, ubiquitous back then. And so a lot of the Nazi um, perpetrators who were caught actually very ashamed and they tried to hide what they were doing the Assyrians didn't hide what they're doing they said this is this is the way we live and the stuff they were doing to people was horrible but so you think about it and you know there I think there's also a level of enlightenment that has happened over the years uh, with Greek philosoph- uh, philosophical thought there was you know in my mind three great Greek philosophers three great Roman philosophers um, that put down the basis of Western philosophical, law and thinking and then we've got enlightenment thinkers and uh, some of the judeo-christian 
ethics that are woven in there. Um, you know, a lot of people think Thomas Aquinas and those guys, you know, as they're kind of taking those ideas of Greek and Roman philosophy and weaving in a, a supernatural element, uh, not, you know, if you read the Roman philosophers, it, it's actually surprising how much of God they understood and feared and respected. Um, so we have a level of enlightenment, I believe, and responsibility. Um, and I'm actually sad to see a lot of a lot of people these days are reverting to, well, humans are just animals, right? Humans are just, we're just bigger apes, you know? We're just evolved a little more. We just, mm-hmm. you know, live out in the jungle. But if you look at the similarities between humans and animals, you can find a lot, right? But if you look at the differences between humans and animals, you can find a lot. And so we are really suspended in a place, you know, between God and animal, right? So Aristotle said, man is the best of all animals and the worst. Mm. Um, and and so, the worst, okay. So I think today when we look at things like that, I mean, I think we, I think we can hold the Nazis a lot more responsible than maybe we would hold the Assyrians. Um, not to say that Assyrians weren't absolutely wicked, Um and they're also, the Nazis are closer in time to us. So it, I mean, I know a guy whose brother was in a concentration camp. Wow. And, um, you know, you know other people who, yeah. you know, fought to liberate, you know, Germany. And you, you, I mean, I was born 30, 36 years, 35 years after the end of World War II. Mm. So we're closer, I was closer at the time I was born to World War II than we are now to the time I was born. Um, and so a lot of those effects you know, we're still being felt. What's going on in Russia right now is absolutely a direct effect of kind of um, how World War II ended. And, and John F. Kennedy actually talked a lot about that in some of his speeches before he was killed, about the toll that World War II took on Russia. And Russia bore the brunt of the ground invasion of Europe okay. and lost so many more troops than we did. Um, and then we took all the credit. We said, yay, the United States is great, which, you know, Russia was our ally at the time. They mm-hmm. were um, our ally. But... You know, with Stalin and uh, some of the things that were happening there, we really uh, took a turn. And then the military-industrial complex developing in the United States uh, that Eisenhower talked about and Kennedy was really starting to become very suspicious of. Um, You know, I mean, it's hard to say that they stoked some of the suspicion and conflict we've had with the Russians over the years, but... It's hard to say that? Well, I mean... Well, (laughs) they made an agreement, and I think right before the fall of the... Soviet Union, they said, we will not go past this line. And then they've added 13 countries past that line since to NATO. I think that's what it is. So, I'm, and I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it's, it's hard to speak um, very in, in very short conversations about things that have been happening like this because these are, these are things that books and documentary series is couldn't even handle accurately. So sure. anything I say about it is going to sound like it is um, short shrift. And so I, I want to acknowledge how complex these issues are. For sure. And also, certainly very complex. Like, right. like uh, what I said may sound like it's pro Putin or something. I certainly do not want to be pro Putin, you know, or right. anything. He's a former KGB officer who basically has recently said he loved back in the days of the good old communism type stuff. So, I mean, I think he's pretty evil. Well, he's a thug and he's a war criminal and he's, you know, he's, he's basically the predictable result of what happens when one person has too much power. Um, 
But on the other hand, I'll say that... Okay, so you were setting something up when I jumped on there. You were saying it's hard to say that it was prompted, but... And you were going to say but, and then I jumped in. Sorry. Well, right, but I mean, we... There have been many opportunities for things to take different turns, right? And they've taken a turn towards um, conflict, towards, you know, um, I guess distrust. And maybe that's the nature of all human political, you know... um, Relations. I mean, I, I don't know. I I don't pretend that I could create a better world than we have. Okay, sure. A lot of people are like, oh, well, yeah, if we just did this, it'd be better. There's all sorts of unintended consequences to that, too. Sure. But I guess what I'm saying is um, it's hard to it's hard to take our suitcase of where we're at now and go back and critique those people and criticize those people. Although I do think... Tying it back into the, the Nuremberg and all the previous... Atrocities and everything. Well, right. But I do think that sometimes you have to say this is wrong and this is horrific behavior. And I do think we did that. But, you know, I'm reading um, Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson right now. Mm. It's uncanny how many of the Nazis and the bad ones we decided, eh, but we're going to bring over here. We brought over like 1,500 of very ardent. And if I told you the stuff these guys were doing, um, you'd be like, yeah, that guy deserves to die. And we got them over here. One to benefit from their knowledge. Sure. But two, to deny the Russians of their knowledge as mm. well. And, but I'm not, I can't sit here and say that was the wrong move. It was a very distasteful move. It's a move the United States hid and kept very hush-hush. So it, it has benefited you and I pretty well, <laughs> selfishly. Well, we maybe. live a great, very safe life. Well, maybe. And that's that's the okay, that's the may, may Okay, maybe. That's the argument, is that we made these compromises for security. Right, I guess that would be uh, something that at least needs to be mentioned. Is like I have lived, even comparing me to like my wife from Cuba. Like I, my I've lived a very, very p- posh. I've trained jujitsu for a thrill on the side sure. life, um, and so to a degree, if I start to say, you know, be real critical of of every everything, then it may be kind of taking that for granted. Would be an argument, maybe. Well, sure, it was. You know, and I was raised. My dad was in the military. You know, he worked at the Pentagon. Um, wow. I've got, I've got two brothers who have served in the military. I've got a brother right now who's in the Navy, brother who's just getting out of the Army right now. And so, you know, my family has been in the military for generations. And the one thing you don't do is ever criticize the military, which also means you never criticize the Defense Department, which also means you never criticize the Defense Industrial Complex, which also means you don't criticize any Republican <laughs> because all they want to do is keep us safe, right? But at some point, somebody has to look at things and say, but is that for real? Now, you said your wife's from Cuba, right? Correct. And yeah, Cuba has a horrible, oppressive regime, but Cuba's not getting invaded by anybody, right? The biggest fear that all Americans have is that we're going to be invaded. Wow. We're all going to be speaking Russian or Chinese. Chinese. China's a big one right now. In um, in the 1990s, Japanophobia was real. I mean, there was a lot of... And not that they were going to invade us militarily, but they were going to take over us technologically, right? And so... And then there's people who think we're being invaded from the South by, um, you know, unauthorized immigration and that, you know, there's this problem with, you know, our borders being flooded. Now, we should be right to critique what's going on with Russia and say, you know what, how is that affecting us geopolitically? We're right to say, how is China affecting us geopolitically? We're right to say, hey, how is our technological manufacturing base keeping up with Japan and why are they doing better than us? And there are reasons for all those things. But I don't think that we need to spend 13 times, that's not 13 times, it's what the next 13 countries in a row spend there you go. on defense. Sure. 
why don't we just spend with the next three spend? Okay, we'll still outspend everybody. Okay, I'm for big militaries. The, the big risk, selfishly too, with if we're going on that train of me living the posh life, grew up in Lagrange. You know, I've just being honest, I've had a good life. Both my parents are great. Yeah. Um, at some point, the current our currency is actually going to be devalued enough to where we don't have the reserve. I mean, didn't Brazil recently change currencies? They're using the Chinese yen now, I believe, or they're using it more. So, I mean, at some point there will be consequences, even if you're looking at the gluttonous, you know, uh, let's just do whatever's best for making me safe right here argument. At some point, the currency needs needs to fold, I think. Well, I don't, I don't want our currency to fold, okay? Um, I, want <laughs> I don't to, either. I want us to make smooth transitions to better choices, both economically and geopolitically. I don't know that – I didn't hear Brazil – is not using us as reserve currency, but what I have heard is that Brazil and other countries are trying to create another currency medium to exchange oil with, okay? And so one of the big problems for the world and benefits to the United States is that all oil transactions are denominated in U.S. dollars, okay? Because from the beginning of the transaction to the end of the transaction, they're very sure that the United States dollar is going to be worth about the same Either way, okay, because the United States dollar is pretty stable. It goes up and down. Compared to other countries, right. that's the good thing is it really is. Right, but what if I told you, hey, I'm going to buy, you, you own some real estate, okay, and so I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to buy an apartment complex from you, but I'm going to, um, I'm just going to pay you an Argentinian, mm. Argentinian currency or Ecuadorian currency. They're great countries, right? You'd be like, yeah, but in the past, there's been huge fluctuations. They've inflated their, no, nah, I'm not going to take, I want U.S. dollars, which, you know, it makes sense because you're in the U.S., but if you were another country buying something from another country, they'd say, okay, well, we're going to pay you in yen. You're like, well, you manipulate your yen. You know, the Chinese government manipulates its currency, okay? When I went to see Barack Obama speak for his first um, election tour at the um, Marriott downtown, one of the things he talked, and I was the only person in the room clapping to this, he was like, we are going to enforce fair trade with China to keep them from devaluing their currency and undermining American manufacturing. That was one of the things he talked about, right? Because that's, and I mean, I don't think he did anything. Also a very solid anti, just entirely anti-war pro-trade. I mean, that's what it is. Just comments. He had a great campaign. He did. And he was a great communicator. I think, you know, I think he was a little bit too, um, I think he was a little bit too sympathetic to everyone. And, uh, you know, but I mean, I think he'll go down as a, a really good president. Do you? Uh, yeah, I do. Despite all the war? So that's the weird thing, right? Because who who is critical of a, a Democrat president? Well, it's the guys on the other side. The that's accurate. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how can the Republicans say, yeah, you did all these drone strikes? He's like, yeah, but I kept uh, Lockheed Martin in business, didn't I? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't like the fact that he drone striked everybody. I agree. I agree. And, and, and it is only mentioned by the Republicans... <laughs> About the other side, vice versa. Also, so I agree that the teams thing is 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 um, detrimental. I'd say to to that entire conversation. It is, and it's also very hypocritical because if you look at a a Democrat in the nineteen eighties and even nineteen nineties, they would look like a very conservative Republican right now. Sure. I mean, if you go back to Bill Clinton, okay, and Bill Clinton's presidency, what don't you like about it? I mean, he's like the only president in our lifetime to have a balanced budget, I believe. So some of that, something along those uh, lines. Yeah, and some of he did. He, there was a little bit of economic growth, which left George 
uh, W. Bush with a surplus, which he then turned around and gave rebates to everyone with, right? So the government, for the first time after Clinton, and ostensibly, and I'll give him as much credit as the president can get, um, they actually started bringing in more money and more money than they spent. And so it looked like the government was going to run a huge surplus, which I don't know that I agree that George W. Bush should have just given it all back. I think they could have shored up their financial position. But like I said, I'm very skeptical of like people taking their current position and going back and saying, yeah, but if you did this, I mean, but anyway, what, what's wrong with Bill Clinton? Well, other than the fact that he had a huge scandal, and as one of my professors pointed out, that if Monica Lewinsky hadn't happened, then George W. Bush wouldn't have gotten elected. Hmm. And it's like, well, cause and effect, you know? Um, and by the way, if, you know, if a current president, especially a Republican president, uh, was doing what, you know, Bill Clinton was doing with one of his aides, I think in today's environment, that would be looked a lot differently. And that's just to be said. That's the that team's thing, yeah. Things, But things also change. Like, you know, um, I'm not saying that morality was right or wrong changes, but how we look at it changes. And I think that today people are more pragmatic than ever. If it's going to win for my team, I'll do it. Right? Agreed. And I, at my core, am a Republican. I will not vote for Donald Trump. Didn't this past election. I won't again. Um, but I, I try, I, I lean more toward being like a libertarian anarchist now. And I try to really, as best I can, disassociate myself from the Republican team. It's, it's, but, but I guess my point is that's difficult. Well, it is because, you know, Republicans are not conservative and <laughs> Democrats are not liberal. Yeah, like I, Donald Trump, everybody's all over the place. Sorry to interrupt, yes. And I'll tell you what I mean. If you talk about classic liberalism, I am a classical liberal. Okay. And I'm a classical conservative because you don't have to choose. I want everybody to have rights. I want our government to be small. I don't want our government getting into everybody's life about anything. That makes me sound like a libertarian, right? Except I don't think heroin should be legal for everybody. And it's not... Welfare state, you probably have different thoughts. Well... You know, one of the big problems in the United States is we can't do anything with nuance, okay? And so if you look at, you know, we say, oh, well, in Europe, they made all drugs legal. In Portugal, you know, it's given out drugs. That's not exactly what happened. If you go to Amsterdam right now, you can buy a bunch of drugs, but they're illegal. Interesting. They Never have been there. They've developed, oh, I have. Um, it's neat. I mean, everybody should go once. But they have developed a system in which they've regulated things. So if you're walking down the street high... And you don't bother anybody. The police do not bother you. Mm. But if you are being belligerent, they will confront you. And if you say, well, I'm just using drugs, it's legal. They will say, no, it's not legal. You're okay. coming with us. Okay. But they will, They have a, a more nuanced social um, net. And so when people are saying today, well, I think social workers should be responding instead of police officers. I don't necessarily think they're wrong. Okay. But I think it should be an integrated approach because um, if somebody's you know, mentally unstable, they can and will be dangerous sometimes, right? But I don't think that everybody should just be locked up. Okay. And I don't think people with mental illness should be locked up. But what we did was we cleared out our institutions, said we're not going to do that anymore. And so now we have people who are criminally insane who have to walk the streets because we can't do anything with nuance. It's either all drugs are bad and you're serving a life sentence for a pound of weed or all drugs are legal and there's literally open drug scenes in downtown Louisville and we're calling it a homeless crisis. That's not a homeless crisis. That's addiction gone to its logical conclusion. 
My mother is a licensed clinical social worker, advertiser for the podcast. Yes, she's wonderful. I love your mom. Oh, you do know my mom. You do, yes. Yeah, she's wonderful. You make, every time I meet her, I'm like, you know, she's just, I don't know, she's just. I'm very fortunate. So nice. I, I so have nice. a very sweet mother. Um, but she would be very intrigued by this conversation and would probably agree with everything, you know, your summary of everything. Well, you know, I, I hope so. And, you know, it's. And she sees it. That's what she deals with. Sure. Psychiat- she works for a psychiatric unit. It, uh, uh, she's a social worker for a psychiatric psychiatric unit of a hospital, so she runs on kind of like those type of runs. Right, and sometimes I don't know if there is a right answer because no matter what you do, um, mental illness is a problem and you can't fix it. You can alleviate it. You know, addiction may be a problem you can't fix, but we can treat it well. Um, and then the conversation always goes to, and maybe this is a team's thing, the person on the other side of whatever you're doing says, yeah, but we're spending billions on you know, this and billions on that that we don't have. We should be investing more money in our country. And I agree with that, by the way. I think that we should take the money that we're spending on missiles and still buy some missiles, okay? I'm, I'm all for missiles. Let's buy more missiles than, you, than Russia and China put together, but maybe we could leave Brazil's you know, budget out of there and let's put some more money back into our country. The problem is, What's scary, and people respond to fear, is, oh, no, the Russians are going to come over here and occupy us. Oh, the Chinese. That so we is. And, you know, China has like one and a half military bases across the world. We have like 800. Yeah, and China will never invade us. Yeah, that's the thing. So, so a lot of that, um, I guess that should be like a red scare or whatever well, Whatever you want to say it is. is, is there is. And you know, in all scares time, the shit out of people, and it works, but it doesn't seem to be based or fa- very well founded it's not and I'll, you don't want to know why china will never invade us why because they do not believe in invading other countries hmm. their preeminent military philosopher sun tzu talked about how an empire should wage war and if you go back and you read his book and it's it's little short phrases okay it's written more like little proverbs but if you read sun tzu's um, book the art of war you will be amazed because if you read it, you'll say, you know what? All that is absolutely true. And the United States has been proving that it's true for the last 75 years. So case in point, the empire should never wage wars far from its boundaries. Otherwise, its resources will be depleted. Its people will grow weary and it will have to retreat in shame. Makes sense. Has that ever happened recently? Have you ever seen that situation play out? Where a military was overextended across the world? Well, no. Where an empire went to war far from its boundaries, depleted its resources, the people got tired, and the empire retreated in shame. Like like Afghanistan. Okay, okay, okay. I mean, if there's... Now, we won every battle, okay? There's no question that the United States military superiority won every battle in Afghanistan, would win any battle against any opponent. In fact, the reason we spent so much on military is because we were afraid of World War II. We said we'll always be able to fight two powers at the same time. Imagine that. We can take on Russia and China at the same time and probably not even institute a draft, all right? Russia's instituting a draft right now to try to beat up Ukraine. Mm. which in the world of things, I mean, would be like us trying to take out Uruguay. I think Ukraine also has a draft right now. I'm sure they do. Most countries have compelled service. Yeah. Russia um, Russia has it. Israel's got it. Germany's got it. South Korea's got it. You do two years. Every human being does two years. All right? So you know Chan Sung Jung, the Korean zombie? Mm-hmm. Korean zombie? Yeah, I think I remember hearing yeah. this. He went and did his yeah, two yeah. years of service. South Korea. Right. 
I mean, everybody's doing it. It doesn't matter whether you're a star or a hero, and they have different ways you can do it, but they're all, we do not have a draft. We probably will never have a draft because it's very politically um, unpopular. The unpopular. Vietnam thing really blew up in our face. Well, it did, and we did a lot of things. Oh, was that another Was that another incident yeah, where yeah, the Empire similar. waged war yep, okay. far from its boundaries? We won every battle, but we lost the war. I see, okay. I mean, okay. that's the thing. Well, guess who knows that? China knows that. Sure. They believe that Sun Tzu was right. So China hasn't even invaded Taiwan. I don't know if they're going to. I kind of suspect they won't. When's the last time China invaded someone? Well, I think there was some... I think they took over Tibet... They may be influencing Nepal. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Um, but these are places right on their border, right? Yes. They have a relationship with North Korea that is... Very friendly. Yeah, and maybe a little um, a little controlling. But those are places right on their border. They're ex- um, exercising control on the border. What we are afraid of right now is China's Belt and Road Initiative, where they are developing economic projects in Africa. They are exerting control and, well, let's just say influence, not control, influence on places through economic means. It's very smart because... But why is that a threat to us? Well, if they're strong, then that makes us weak, right? Yeah. We can't both be strong at the same time. I guess that's the, kind of the, the thing, right? Why not just free trade and try to get along? Does that sound too Pollyanna? So, no, but it's, it's not sexy. It's not fearful. Okay. Do you know what brought down the Soviet Union? It was economic, okay? Sure. Oh, yeah, just mismanagement of... They were giving money to a lot of the Eastern European states. They were also giving a, a ton of money to Cuba. Right, because they want to support... uh, communist countries. Sure. And that's one reason the United States said, well, we have to fight in Vietnam because we've got to stop the spread of communism. Now, I have a view on life that good ideas will win out in the long run and bad ideas will not. Now, other people could say, yeah, but a lot of people are going to die in the process. Well, if you go to war over these ideas, a lot of people are going to die no matter what, right? So I don't know that Let's put it like this. I would absolutely join the military and fight in any conflict that threatened the territorial borders of the United States. Okay, okay. Without hesitation. If my son was 18 years old, and so I'm already past the age that even if we went to the worst war, I mean, I, I wouldn't be put in a frontline capacity, right? Sure. The worst I'd be doing is doing like tire drives and stuff like that. They don't want the 40-year-old Aaron Murphy. They want the, the risk-taking 21-year-old. Well, there's a reason young people go to war, right? Yeah, they're what? Old people know better. Sure. So if my son was 18 years old and said, hey, dad, I want to join the army. Well, guess what? I had this situation happen already. My little brother said, hey, I'm joining the National Guard. You know, I said, they're going to send you to Afghanistan. He said, no, no, not this unit. The recruiter says this one never gets deployed. Three months later, my brother called me. He said, guess what? I said, you're going to Afghanistan. He said, yes, I am. My brother did his tour in Afghanistan, right? And... I'm not critiquing the past and the past decisions, okay? I'm not going to be out there saying, oh, we shouldn't have gone to Vietnam. We shouldn't have gone. That's done, all right? But in the future, what kind of decisions are we going to make? Okay. And I'm glad that we're not committing troops on the ground in Ukraine. Sure. Right? Um, you know, I know there are people and people I respect, like Rand Paul. I respect a lot of stuff he says because he's very constitutional, right? Um, he's a little bit... Um, extreme sometimes, yes. but sometimes just being constitutional sounds extreme. Sure. Right? And he says we should only spend money we have. <laughs> Is that extreme? 
Well, I mean, it's good financial advice. You follow the, that rule um, yourself personally, probably. Well, in some things, I mean, I do borrow money to do commercial, but, but commercial in projects, very, but I, I don't run a big credit card debt. So I'm that guessing. Sense. Yeah, I have a gut feeling you don't. Um, so, but if we get into it, you know, what decisions are we going to be making, and where are we going to where are we going to put the blood of our of our young people? Um, so my brother did not die in Afghanistan. <laughs> I didn't think he did, but one of my friend's brothers did. Oh wow! One of my law school classmates, while we were in law school, her little brother. His name was Matthew Stanley, and uh, he died. Very sad. It was in Iraq or Afghanistan, and they named a bridge after him. They named a bridge after him. Damn. And you think about it. I mean, like, was was it worth it? The empire got tired, and we retreated in shame. And guess what's going on in Afghanistan? Same thing that's been going on for the last 1,000, no, 2,000, no, 3,000 years. And so... I'm not saying, you know what, I don't even care. Whether Joe Biden was right or wrong to pull out like he did, okay. Maybe I actually am okay with that. Despite my Republican inside of me, it was a sloppy way to do it, but I don't think there's an unsloppy way to end a war like that. I don't know. I'm, not that I know of. I'm I don't not know. Gonna, I'm not going to judge it. It's happened. Okay. I'm, I'm not going to sit here, get some stones, and throw them at the other side. Whatever the other side is. Right? If you did, Hunter would probably grab them and smoke them. Well, you know, it was funny that, you know, 330 million people after th- out of 330 million people knew exactly whose cocaine that was. Do we really think that was actually Hunter Biden's cocaine? I mean, come on, man. Right? At some point, you have well, to... It's low-hanging fruit, right? It's low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I have a uh, feeling it wasn't. So it's my, it was my God. Here's the thing. I don't know, and I don't care. Because here's the thing. Every... I mean, you just heard my story, right? Yeah. My dad was a good man. And so... I'm not saying that, oh, Joe Biden's got a son who's, you know what, in one sense, that is family business. Now, if it is a fa- if Joe Biden's taking bribes, I mean, that's yeah, obviously yeah. another inquiry. Yeah. And, you know, there's people that have that job to figure that out, right? I'm not going to throw stones because the, guy, the guy's son is, by all intents and purposes, you know, not, not, you know, not the best person. I've made bad choices. I have people I, in my family who have went down somewhere, right. you know, that can be very sad. And you know what? When I when I hear all of this stuff, I mean, the problem is, you know, he, he grew, he's growing up in a, a family that has a public face, you know. He's like a child celebrity. I mean, there's, and if he's already got predispositions to, you know, party and, and do drugs, I mean, that's just going to exacerbate it, okay? I'm not, I just hope that he gets help, that he has a, you know, a good life at some point. Um, you know, he's got a deal to, you know, get past some of his criminal stuff. Great. Like all good. No, in, in all seriousness, I um, he used drugs, documented, and according to a standard applied to many other Americans, he would be in a lot of prison time. Right? That's safe to say. So, I mean, and that's hard to know. And I, okay, I mean, we'd have to get into the weeds on that. I guess that is the that is the presumption that he's getting a slap on the wrist. And I'll tell you, there's lots of people who get slaps on the wrist. There's lots of people who get the book thrown at him. Right? Sure. I got a client. I represented him in a case where he was shot. Um, in a shooting that happened in a public place. Six people got shot, right? And I represent this guy. He um, he was in prison, though. Most of the time I represented him on, you know, not relating to the shooting, but just because he was selling drugs. But he was a nice guy. Most positive guy that I've ever represented. He was He's always encouraging. Well, he caught a federal case, and uh, now he's serving 29 years in prison. Wow. And I'm not saying what that selling... He was selling, I mean, allegedly. I mean, I guess not allegedly. He was convicted of... Like, he was convicted of conspiracy to sell fentanyl, okay? Which, wow. you know, if, like, that's that's bad, okay? If you're, 
I guess so, yeah. I, I, I don't know. But I, I know it is. Well, let me put it like this. But I'm not defending fentanyl use at all, but what's different from that in bath salts? I don't even know. I, there's so many new drugs that I it didn't do when I was young that weren't around that I don't even know the difference between them. Fentanyl, I know, is very deadly. Bath salts is bad too, okay? But what I'm saying is, okay, there's a difference between getting a bag of weed and splitting up among your friends. That's really, you know, oh, you're a drug dealer. Okay. Versus like... Fentanyl is used to cut other things and to indirectly kill people, or directly kill people, probably. Some people believe that China is flooding the United States with fentanyl in order to degrade our society. Now, look, I'm not a geopolitical like strategist, but I'm saying it is bad. It is. I think one of my best friends died from it a few months ago. I was at his funeral. Yeah, I mean, it's killing 100,000 people a year and ruining the lives. So anyway, I'm not saying what he, I'm not defending what he's in prison for, but he's in prison for 29 years. Right. And then other people get slaps on the wrist for different things. And we, if you wade into the sentencing system and wade into the, um, the different rules and how much a person is going to spend if they go to jail in Georgia versus Kentucky versus Indiana. And I'll tell you, typically, you know, I have things that I say, you know, if you get an accident, you want to get an accident in Kentucky, not Indiana. If you go to prison, you want to go to prison in Kentucky, not Indiana. You know, um, there are differences in these things and it's, it's hard to critique them, but I think Overall, and I think maybe this is something your mom would agree with, is we need to be looking at what's our purpose here. Are we are we going to rehabilitate people? Can people be rehabilitated? And sometimes, sometimes it is the law's purpose to punish, to just punish. I mean, cut off people's head. You know, if you you did a crime that was so bad, mm-hmm. I mean, and whether we're talking life in prison or the death penalty, and I'm pretty agnostic about the death penalty. I don't think we should use it often, but you know what? Um, I believe. What is his name? Anton Cernayev, the um, Boston bomber, I think was appealing his sentence. And either he's got a life sentence or a death sentence. And it doesn't hurt my heart, whatever happens to him. Like, I get it. Maybe there's mitigate. Maybe his brother was an influence on him, whatever. It doesn't hurt my heart. Sure. You know? For someone um, who did bad things to kids. No, and, right. You know, I mean, I'm fine hurt, with that. It doesn't hurt my heart that I, we executed Timothy McVeigh, who killed 168 people. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm I'm not a moral absolutist when it comes to that penalty. Okay, and I know people that are, and I respect I respect their view. If you can articulate a moralistic objection to the death penalty, not like, oh, I'm part of a group and we all think the death penalty is bad. But if you personally say, you know what, as human beings, I believe that degrades who we are to kill another human being, no matter how bad. I respect that. That same type of logic could be applied to pro-choice or pro-life type topics. Sim- somewhat similar type of logic, not the same, but somewhat similar. Well, You're talking about life and death. That's pretty... Yes, you are. And I... So, and I'll tell you, there is a group that shouts at the other group, right? Sure. On both those things. Death penalty, not death penalty. Abortion, um, anti-abortion, pro-life. There are groups that shout at each other, right? And I respect people's opinions if they are morally thought out sure. and they can articulate them in a non, non-emotional manner. Okay, um, but emotion gets into these things. They become moralistic, and it's like, well, if you believe that, you're bad. Well, I think if you shout at somebody else, you might be bad. You know, if you just say, well, if you're on this side, and so you have people on one side of the argument who say, well, your argument is so dumb, you should be dead. Mm. And so, um, and you see this. You know, people have no respect for the life of the person they're arguing. They're against. debating against, right? And While they're simultaneously defending the right to life, possibly, or condemning it, or right. Well, but. If you take these things to the extreme, you know, you have people who um, have bombed abortion clinics and killed doctors who provided abortions. And in one sense, that, 
you know, that's the end justifies the means type thing. Well, I'm going to save lives by killing this guy. And the United States, you know, our CIA has engaged in lots of, we're going to kill this guy to save these guys, right? And I think if you get into that kind Whoa, of... Whoa, that was, <laughs> sound like a conspiracy theorist. Well, it does, but if you read Annie Jacobson's book, Surprise, Kill, Vanish, you will see well-documented instances where, you know, she's expounded on these things. Um, highly recommend Annie So it's not Annie really Jacobson. even debatable. I mean, you know, I, I try to stay away from conspiracy theories, but... You were arrested by what? Or <laughs> I was arrested by the United States Secret Service. Okay, okay. That's interesting. They protect the president, right? They do. They are agents of the United States Treasury, and they do, um, they do protect the money, supply the integrity. Of the oh, money. I see. Okay, okay. They do. <laughs> wow. They thought they thought you were maybe a big player. Well, you know, big and little, they do everybody. But um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, maybe I, I, they I didn't think, think you're a big player. Who knows? Who knows? Um, Sorry to bounce around. But um, they also do some work with um, exploited and missing children. And Secret Service. Yes, they're starting to do that, and so that's great. I mean. Um, and you know, for the most part, all the federal agents that I've ever met in both, you know, being on the other side, but also, you know, meeting guys in the professional capacities, um, do what I do now. I mean, they're professionals. They are great guys who are putting their lives on the line, um, to defend our freedoms. And so, um, yeah, I've got nothing but, nothing but respect for them. And I think they, you know, especially now that I know they're helping out with, you know, crimes against children. I mean, more power to it. I'm sure there's many cases of bad app, you know, bad people within those organizations throughout history and maybe I'm sure even now. But I would guess, much like police officers, the majority of them are great people. In my experience, it, honestly, the police officers that I train jujitsu with and get to know and their families and everything are like really good people. Well, I think so too. And I think that what it is, is I don't think there's a lot that are bad. It's just sure. when when you have people in a position of um, authority or position of responsibility, any bad ones look really bad. Sure. So if you think about teachers, right? Mm. I mean, there are if you are a teacher, you are really a special person. I mean, because you're accepting a job that is a lot more stress. It is not very well compensated, and a lot of times it's not appreciated until thirty years later. You know, you might get a few letters from some of your students telling telling you that. Um, you made an impact on their life. But same thing with, you know, police officers. You know, they're out there. Nobody nobody likes it when they're in an interaction with the police, right? Sure. If the police are showing up, it's not for a barbecue most of the time, right? Um, and so most of them are trying to do the best they can. And if they make a mistake, it can be it can be huge, right? And so, yeah, no, I mean. They're definitely under quite a bit of stress. Well, sure. I, I would think, or pressure, or whatever you want to say. Maybe not stress, but at least there's a, you know everyone has a phone recording you now. Well, right, and you got one on your own your own chest recording now, right? So you know. Oh, true. Um, but I'll tell you, you know, my brother, who's um, a Navy pilot, he said that, you know, they train 100% of the time um, for something that may or may not ever happen. So they are the best trained pilots that never do anything. He's a Navy pilot. Interesting. Yeah. But if you think about police officers, they don't have enough training. You know, the military and the SEALs will tell you, they train 80% of the time to work 20% of the time. But how many police officers across our country do we have versus how many of those Navy pilots are there? Well, sure, but there's low-hanging fruit here, which is why I'm really excited about Louisville's initiative to offer jiu-jitsu for their, uh, their officers. And I think that's low-hanging fruit. You know, I think that, uh, I think the officers we train with, I mean, I think they're, 
self-selected to be the good guys. They are, and I realize that. I get it. That they're the ones who have the humility to come in, get their ass kicked for a few years. Right. And no, 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 indefinitely get your ass kicked, right? I mean, that's, it doesn't go away, does it? So, I mean, they, they, those are the very, very, very extreme humble. Right. And ones. so, yeah, they don't have a lot of ego. They're out there legitimately trying to better themselves, trying to do the best they can for the community and the family. And I think that jujitsu gives them the, the ability to better assess situations where physical conflict is possible. Not even present, but possible. Okay. You know, people say, oh, well, he postured, he took a stand. Well, in jujitsu, you learn about the body's mechanics. So you learn about what is possible for a person to do from that position. So if you take a stance, I mean, I know whether I'm, you know, I'm in danger or not. Sure. Should I step to the side? Should I step in front of you? Should I step back? Should I step forward? Oh, I agree. I mean, if all more police officers could train jujitsu, we would realistically have, I, I believe, fewer negative instances. I do too. And, you know, I think that... Um, Jeff Hudson's pushing for that, I think. Well, right. I think I think they're going to do it. I mean, I think it's a done deal. I'm hoping it is. Because if an officer trained three times a week, one hour, one hour, three times a week. Is Jeff Hudson the one who's spearheading that? Um, he is. I think he is. I mean, I don't want to say there's nobody else behind it because I don't want to take... Shout out to city councilman Jeff Hudson. Yeah, he's great. And, you know, he's he's a guy that is a great example of somebody who was elected for the right reasons. Sure. It's a part-time job, but he makes it a full-time job. He I believe is, that. He is always going to um, to do things and looking into city things and trying to make this place better. One of the ma- the things I remember him saying to me since he's become a member of Louisville City Council is emphasizing how the mayor, Green, what's his name? Greenberg. Greenberg has, I think it was for the first time ever, a Democratic mayor of Louisville went into, the, I forget what it was, went into the Republican, uh, you know, area. First time that it ever happened. So that he seems to be in favor of Greenberg with his ability to work within both parties. Well, yeah, and that's something about local government. You know, I mean, I think you are affected as a person more by your local government sure. than by your federal government. Sure. But everybody gets worked up about the federal government. That is an interesting thing. That, I think the war is the biggest thing for that. Other than that, it's a bunch of, um, I don't know, actually. The presidential race gets a lot of credit or a lot of uh, attention, arguably way more than it should. Well, it does. And for the most part, our government is so big that it's impossible to turn the ship. Um, if you look at every president, they say, I'm going to come in, I'm going to do things. You know, Donald Trump is going to drain the swamp. Well, I voted for him the first time. Did you? I was I bought into that stuff. I didn't I thought the racism accusations were crazy. And I thought that he said at least was calling out Jeb Bush's donors. He sounded like he was at least calling out some corruption, which I think is uh, appealing. Um so I didn't um vote for him full uh, full disclosure, but um I am not a person who's like was at all critical of Trump in general. I am critical of Trump in specific. I don't think he's racist. I think he's a little bit of a megalomaniac. Sure. Um, he definitely comes after people who he believes that all come after him, right? Oh, yeah. Very thin skin. And as a political figure, you have to trust yourself when all men doubt you, but you got to make allowances for the doubting too. you got to say, hey, look, 
is that true? Is there any truth there? But 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 we, that's a criticism of him. However, he might win this next election, and if he does, he first off he already won one. He was the president for four years. I agree. Super thin skin has probably served himself not very well through his super super thin skin. But somehow he got. I guess my point is somehow he fucking got elected, which is the craziest shit in the world. I guess a testament to democracy. I guess. Well, yeah, and I mean, people will be writing books and critiquing that for a long time to come, and I think everybody would agree, or a lot of people, the majority of people would agree, that if he could have done what every president before Barack Obama did, and give up their cell phone, you know, Barack Obama was famous for, he was the first president who actually had a phone in his hand. Okay. The president never had a phone in his hand, never was able to communicate except through intermediaries, if Donald Trump could have never had a phone in his hand. But he wouldn't have been elected. Well, so that's an interesting thing. And I heard a guy talking about this. They're like, well, if Trump had been more like Mike Pence, they were like, well, if Trump had been more like He would not have been president, right? And he might win again is my point. So I'm just saying, like, I get it. He, he rubs people the wrong way. Obviously, there's a 30, 30 to 40% of our country, I'm guessing, that absolutely despises everything about Donald Trump. Or maybe it's less than that. I don't know. Well, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, they call that your negatives, you know, and he's got a lot of negatives right now. I think that's what cost Hillary the election, is she had a lot of negatives too. People really didn't like a lot of the, um, you know, I think most of the Clinton legacy, or the good the Clinton legacy could do had already been done at that point, and the bad was just building up at that point. I don't think Hillary um, fully appreciated how much people were suspicious of, and they were a longtime political dynasty in Washington, right? She still won the popular vote. Yeah, and um, so I mean, it's an interesting, it's a very fascinating um, period to look back on. Well, it is, but you know, I I firmly believe in limits to a person's ability to compete in the political arena. Age wise, um, I do believe in age limits, and I am surprised that that's not something that everybody could get on board with right now, because both teams' leading player is very old. Okay, what? What other topics would be uh, issues that we assume Republicans and Democrats would support? Also, the members of Congress cannot own stock in companies that they are specific, directly regulating. <laughs> that, both side, that would be a bipartisan uh, stance, correct? Well, I think that's something that would be supported by people, but not the people in power. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, age limits. Age limits, well, <laughs> guess what? Let me drop this on you. The people in power won't support that age limit one either. They won't. Because um, they're all 80. But I also have an idea for term limits. Um, I believe that every person in federal elected office should be subjected to a 12 plus 1 limit. 12? Yep, 12 plus 1. Wow, so you've put a lot of thought into what this. What we mean by that is 12 years plus one more election. Okay. okay. So if you're a congressman and you're serving two-year cycles, right, you can be elected for six plus one more. Because in this... Some people bounce back and forth, okay? So this is why it's 12 plus 1. So if you were a um, congressman for six terms and served 12 years, you had one more election, you're like, I'm going to go get elected in the Senate. Great. You, can, you get elected in the Senate, well, that's your one more, so you're 18 total. If you're a senator and you've served two terms as senator, six years each, you got 12 years, you get one more. So you can go be elected to Congress and serve okay. two years, or you can be one more Senate. Sounds much more rational than the current system. So 18 years would be your max. And people always say, well, people can't get enough power. And, you know, it, if you can't get power in 18 years and wield some power in 18 years, I mean, I don't know if you're the right man for the job. Okay. But, um, 
you know, it's a bad look when your elected leaders are being wheeled in in, in wheelchairs. And who's the one lady? Feinstein. Diane well, Feinstein. Feinstein. Is she eighty nine? And she what? What just happened? Yeah, well, the, she apparently had to be told where she was. And but here's the thing, I have sympathy for her. Sure. I don't want somebody doing that to me when I'm ninety. You don't want to be in that position. No, but it would seem, and I'll tell you, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is another example. Tactically, that really kind of fucked the Democrats over. She should have resigned during a Democratic presidency. Sure. Why didn't she? Well, she was living a good life. In her mind, she was thinking, I've got a few more years left in me. But was she thinking rationally? And power and being a Supreme Court justice is very powerful. And age both affect your decision making. Okay. And I'm not saying she was not. I mean, I think she was pretty lucid. I mean, I, I don't think her intellect was impaired. I mean, I don't think she was, you know, not able to think. I'm saying we all have to be um, very mindful of how our our judgment is affected. Like, kind of back to the the cockpit type conversation. Right. I'll give you an example. What is the one of the best ways to get secrets out of CIA agents and government people? You approach them. Scare them about their kids or something? Well, yeah, but I mean, that's pretty obvious. That's short-lasted. I mean, no, you approach them with a very pretty... Oh, right? yeah. ...member of the sex that they're attracted to. Sure. And it's called a honeypot. They have a name for this, okay? Yeah. Because people don't think rationally when... They're flattered. They're flattered. Sexually aroused. Sure. And we're all human beings. We and That's it, very... I can see a lot of people falling for that. Well, and they do. Oh, well, they do. Just... I mean, Russia has done this. and That's not fake. No, it's not fake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, they're actual... They have names of the actual women who've approached our actual, you know, sitting congressmen. Um, the thing is, you can't be blinded to the fact that you're susceptible to this. But mm. everyone, I mean, you got to be a little crazy to want to be in power anyway. Um, you got to be crazy to want to be a doctor, maybe to be a lawyer, you know. Um, Are you defending Mike Pence here? Mike Pence... Because Which he part? does not trust himself uh, okay. to sit alone with a woman. Is that? Are you taking this in a Mike Pence direction? Okay, so what I believe he said was I, now, and I could be wrong. I thought he said he did not drink alcohol alone with a woman or something like that. Oh, is that what it was? Um, I'm not sure, but yeah, he said he said I have a personal limitation. Now, I will tell you, I have heard many people criticize Mike Pence for that, but once again, he articulated a moral standard sure. which he has made for himself. Farah Sahabi, similar. Farah Sahabi said, I will not roll with a female. And he's been approached by many females. And he, when you hear his story of how he defended sure. himself, the woman who came and tried to roll with him told him the story about how she'd been sleeping with the previous <laughs> gym owner. And it had basically split the gym up. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, yeah, Farah is stupid because he doesn't want to do the same thing. And he's like, brother, if... You know, if you're pure of heart, you know, I mean, go ahead. But I'm, you know, I'm who I am. I, I've made this rule. If you can articulate a moral standard for yourself. Wow. Tying this back into something right. else there. Now, if you if you came to me and you said, Aaron, I have this moral standard, so you should live by it. Oh, okay. I would say to you, well, maybe we want to check ourselves here. You are overstepping your bounds. But if you said, I have a moral standard, it's for me. Well, later I might say, I might want to adopt that moral standard. Sure. That would be fine. So when Mike Pence says that, and sure, I have heard people criticize him for that, okay? 
Um, I will say that setting personal minimums is a sign of strength, not weakness. Okay, and so in the pilot world, for the sake of that, you applaud Mike Pence. I applaud him for making a thought-out choice okay. about his actions. So many times, and I'm uh, I'm first on this list. Okay, we get in situations, we make mistakes. Man, I just wasn't thinking. People say, "What were you thinking?" I guess I wasn't. Sure. I guess I didn't have. You have a unique perspective on that. Well, um, or probably not unique, but uh, among people, your peers, unique. Sure. Um, but you know, when you're flying, you have personal minimums. Okay. You have things the aircraft can do, things that other pilots can do, but you also have personal minimums. So if I see the weather and I say, "Yeah, the wind's blowing a little hard," I'm not going to go today. My instructor, Cody, is not going to come to me and be like, "What? Are you, were you scared? You're going to mm. do that? Man, anybody could fly in that." You're such a little, you know, you're such a little, you know, scaredy cat for not wanting to do that. No, he's going to say, those are your personal minimums. I respect that. That's going to save your life. And so I'll tell you a story. I was flying with Mac one day and I took Mac up in the plane. Now, like I said, Mac is ATP. He's typed on five jets, like the best of the best. Does he go to your 7 a.m. classes? Uh, you know, he came a couple times. Okay. Too late. Sorry to I took him in the plane and the weather was not as advertised. Okay, the weather was a little worse than, and I was worried. I, I started, I said, this this is more than more than I was I bargained for. And we flew out a little, I said, I got to go back. I said, we can't do this. He said, that's fine. He didn't say, oh, come on, it'll be fine. Oh, I'm with you. You know, he said, that's fine. He said, do that. I went around, missed the first landing, had to go around again. Now, they did put a low-level wind shear warning on the airport, and I saw a lot of other planes that day come right back down. So, um... But, you know, my instructor, Cody, was like, I fly in stuff that's worse than that all the time. But he said, next time, let's go up together. I'll give you more training on that. He didn't say, oh, you should just take a risk. Mac looked at me and went on the ground. He said, yeah, any any landing you walk away from is a good one. We'll go flying again another time. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, it, it impugns your ability. So, he seems like a trash talker on the mats. Mac? No, he's not at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he is. Is he? Well, Maybe maybe just trash talks to you for a reason. I don't know, um, but that's the thing. I don't I don't criticize somebody for setting personal minimums in their own life. I don't criticize for us or hobby for that for saying I will never roll with a female. Um, I applaud him for making a thought out decision about his personal minimums. And I know people who say I will never drink a drop of alcohol. Okay, mm. my father was like that. Okay, is like that. Do I say oh well he's. He's just such a judgmental, you know, teetotaler person, and he's just a, you know, legalist. And no, I say, you know what? He's made a decision for his life. Now, as far as I know, he's never come to my house and seen my liquor cabinet and be like, "You should have thrown those away." Okay. Um, but I'm sure he would tell me, "You need to be careful and responsible sure. because people wreck their lives with alcohol." Sure. So if Mike Pence is the vice president of the United States, he's under a lot bigger scrutiny, and so a mistake for him, I could do the same thing he could do, and he would affect things a lot worse, right? Sure. Same thing with a 20-year-old kid could do things. And if I did them, it would be a lot worse, right? If I was printing money in my... We were 20 years old when you got arrested for that? I was. So oh. if I was printing money in my basement right now, you'd be like... <laughs> what the hell? You, you are an I absolute would be, moron. I would like, assume that you were... If, if I found out you were doing that now, I'd, I would assume you're just really wealthy secret. Like, just like a many, many billionaire. Well... If you've yeah, been doing this that whole time. No, but I mean, like, that would be stupid. It would be stupid doing be doing cocaine and Adderall sure. and like, drugs now. Sure. You know, because that would affect my life and more people in my life in a negative way. Sure. And so, and that's why people say, oh, you go to college to find yourself and you go to college to make dumb decisions. 
I don't think that's the reason to go to college. I think people should make better decisions. But in one sense, okay. the idea is, you know, make it. I'll make it fun here. You know, the Amish have an idea of Rumspringa, right? I'm not familiar. So in the Amish, the Amish are very, um, very fastidious about how they live their lives, right? And every ordinance has its own set of rules, but um, it's basically you will not be have connection with the outside world. You will not be dependent on the outside world. You will live in a very um, primitive lifestyle. You will farm with uh, horses most of the time. You will not have electricity. And we would all see that as very burdensome. But every Amish person chooses that life. And while they're a teenager, they're allowed to go out and see the world and experiment in the world. Okay. And I've even, seen Kingpin. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's all you need to say. Right. I, I know, that must be how it always happens. And, you know, sometimes it's a little amusing and, you know, like we there's little shows about it. But this mm-hmm. idea that you know, while you're young, you get to look around at the options and choose and make some decisions because they know that if you get married and if you have children and if you have, you know, six Amish children and an Amish farm, and then all of a sudden you decide, yeah, this Amish thing ain't for me. That makes sense. Well, then you've it's a right hurt the community. Okay. You know, the community is damaged because you were a building block. Your family was a building block. But, you know, if you're 16, 17 years old and you say, you know what, I love you, mom and dad, but I'll be visiting you on Christmas. They say, okay, well, you know, go with God. Um, and so there is an idea where you should make all your mistakes young. Um, Hopefully you live. Well, right. And then the parents, you know, who listen to this be like, I hope my children never make mistakes. Right? Yeah, I know. I know. I was 19 and I was with my friend who overdosed and died. I was with him. Yeah, I mean. Just, just very, very dumb, 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 dumb things when you're 19 or 20. Yeah. Hopefully you live. Hopefully you live. What else can we do? I have a son. For some reason, I'm, I shouldn't say that. I'm worried about all my kids, but uh, the young male thing is a little scary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I told you last time, my cousin Bobby, who died at 14, right, when uh, his dad gave him a motorcycle. And wow, Bobby was a great guy. I loved hanging out with him. I was Dad's brother? Uh, no, it was, my, it was my mom's sister, her son, and... Wow. Um, I was like nine. He was 14. So he was always the older kid. He was cool to hang around. But he was so nice. I mean, like, Bobby was great. I love seeing Bobby. And, uh, you know, so what's that? 30, 33 years. The world hasn't had a Bobby in it. Wow. And uh, he could have had a family. He could have had kids, you know. He, but he's dead. Aaron, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I, before we do start the process of wrapping things up, you're not even on social media. You look. You're looking into retirement. What is there even anything that like you would encourage anyone listening to follow or support? No, you know, I don't ever want anybody to think that I do anything because I wanted a financial incentive. Or I wanted their business. Or anything like that. Mm, okay. Um, frankly, I've been blessed. I want to help people, mm. and so a lot of times I just get called with questions. Like, before I came in here, I had a buddy who was coming I heard that, a legal, yeah. legal question. Um, I You've helped just I, at least answered a couple questions for me on a few occasions. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I'm not seeking business. I want to do things that leave a legacy. You know, the reason I fly, the reason I do jujitsu is because I want other people to know that you can have fun as a middle-aged man. I want to leave a great example for my kids that they should have hobbies and well-rounded lives so they don't get stuck. I can relate in a place to that. They're miserable. Sure. With. Um you know, I want to 
you know, I teach jujitsu, um, and I want to fly and do things like that because I want to enrich people's lives. Sure. I want to give people, like, if somebody came to me and said, hey, tell me about this, tell me about that, I would want to give them the best advice possible without them thinking that I was doing anything but giving to them. Sure. And, you know, I think that even through my experience, you know, my dad has friends who have kids who are going through hard times, and they call them, they say, is there any hope? Is there any hope, you know? And I hope that everything that's happened in my life and happens in my life gives somebody else hope. And, and especially sharing what I assume most people at the academy were not familiar with, your story about prison. No, most of them aren't. A f- only a few of them are. Only a few of them but, are. But, but I do believe sharing that is a positive thing in that it, it um, of course, humanizes you. But, but it, it also probably teaches parents and kids, you know, uh, some important lessons, or it can. Well, yeah, you know, I think that, I think that God can work and does work everything together for good, and I think that we all, and the reason I'm not on social media, you know, we all tr- want to curate an image of ourselves, and yeah, I want people to think nice things about me. Sure, I do. I'm, I'm not out there being a misanthrope and a malcontent. I mean, I love people, but. I don't love the curated image of people and everybody's suffering. Everybody's going through a hard time. You know, everybody's got a struggle. And I think a lot of people look at me and my life and they think, man, that guy's never struggled a day in his life. Oh, okay. You know, they see me and my pretty wife and my beautiful kids and my job that I never have to go to because I own the company and I'm flying around getting planes. And I don't want them to think that, you know, there's something special about me. You know, everything I have is the gift of God. And I, you know, I was sitting in a federal prison, you know, wondering if I would ever be able to work at McDonald's at one point. So, you know, I, I definitely want to be honest about my life and what God has done in my life because if we're not being honest, you know, everything we're doing is building a stepping stone for another person. Every time we tell another person information, it's building a stepping stone for them because people are going to rely on that information. They're going to hear those stories. They're going to tell those stories. But if my story is not honest... If I'm not telling you the truth, sure. right? If I'm saying, you know, I, you know, never had a problem in my life. You know, you do things my way, you get these results, blah blah. I've built you a stepping stone that is not, it's not a foundation. You step on that, you're gonna fall through it. Sure. You're gonna say, man, I, I don't understand why these things are happening. Oh, you know, um, these bad things happen in my life. I'm never gonna be able to get, you know, get beyond them, etc. I want to, I want to leave honest stepping stones behind, so that you can either follow me. Or avoid what I've done, sure. right? I mean, some of the best lessons you can leave other people is don't do what I did. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I want to be honest and transparent as much as possible with who I am. Um, and of course, you can't be, you know, completely honest and completely transparent all the time. But I definitely don't want to, you know, sugarcoat anything or hide anything. So you literally don't want new business? No, not really. I mean, look, there's a lot of other lawyers out there who you could go to. And they'll do a good job for you. Um, and I would be happy to tell people, you know, if you want to call Alex White, he's a buddy of mine. Alex um, White, Mark Helmuller, good people. Great guy. Um, but, and there's so many good attorneys, you know, I mean, um, Adam Redden and Richard Breen's office is a great guy to go to. Wilson Green, another classmate of mine. If you're injured, I mean, there's tons of guys you can go to. Okay. Um, I don't even have a Google my business anymore where you could leave me a review. Okay. I don't even show up on the maps. And that's by choice, okay? That's by choice because I, I'm i not out there chasing business. I'm not out there trying to say, you know, oh, do this or do that. And I'm going to tell you why. Because God is the one who blesses me. 
God is the one who prospers me. And so I don't want anybody to say, oh, well, I brought a big case to Aaron Murphy and I made him rich. Huh. No, I mean, I, I depend on God. That's it. And, you know, I could be bankrupt tomorrow. And people could say, oh, Aaron Murphy thought he was so successful. He thought he was going to have this business. He thought he was going to build these buildings. And look at that. And guess what? I'm going to win with God. I'm going to lose with God. If God wants to be bankrupt, I'll be bankrupt. And I'll still be grateful for all the things he's brought me through. Wow. Very powerful, unexpected directions to that episode. I do appreciate you coming on. Well, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's good for my pod. I mean, that's a substantial story for my podcast, for the, the people maybe, to right? I had a guy on the podcast once who got in trouble for, I think I, I asked you about it ahead of time. I may have. I had a guy who got in trouble for hitting a, a uh, protester at the Black Lives Matter the summer of 2020, and then he was going to prison a few days after our episode, and he kind of spilled his heart on the episode and then went to prison. For some reason, that type of shit kind of, is intriguing legal stuff. I didn't. I didn't know about the prison. I didn't know you were going to come clean with that. Certainly interesting to share that with you. No, I know you didn't know. I yeah, know you didn't know. Fascinating. Well, Aaron, thank you very much for coming on. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, we will have another episode out soon. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.